Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Tuesday morning, December the 5th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So what did you ask me first thing this morning? I mean, when we- you walked in the door, it's... It's not about politics. It's not. About, it's, right. it's about what? It's about what, Rev? I, okay. I, I asked you if you've been busy fixing our darn football program. I'm busy trying to get Trump elected. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't well, have time to worry can't about Can't you the, do both? I mean, come Gamecocks. on. Sure, I could do both. But, I mean, I mean it's Christmas super season. Superhuman. I don't want to get at it, you know, as much as I, <laughs> oh, come on. As I did in no, my I younger for, days. For all of us, can you please, please get Trump elected and fix the Gamecock football so program? So, let me ask you a question. You, right. you're, you're not a lifer. You're a convert. I mean, he came down south. Right. Um, you eventually ended up a Gamecock fan. Yep. I am, I mean, I'm a lifer. I, sometimes I wish Sam Tenenbaum had been a Clemson fan, and Clemson was an hour and fifteen minutes away from home instead of. Um, but it builds it builds character, Rev. Being sure. a Gamecock fan builds oh, yeah. enormous character. Yeah. So, <laughs> if given the opportunity, one or the other, would you rather have a football national championship or Donald Trump <sighs> followed by by his heir apparent uh, to to kind of carry the America First? ideology that, or, or political agenda forward. See, that's a darn impossible question, but I, I'm going to show you what kind of patriot I am. Okay. I'm going for Trump and okay. fixing the country. You would I'm rather a patriot have, like that. Okay. I guess it's a bigger deal. It, it, I'm yeah. in the grand scheme for of things, humanity, it's a much bigger deal. And the planet, I think it's a bigger deal. Yeah. But that's I, just me. Well, I mean, I, I get it. Um, <laughs> but, but that's that's yes, that's me sacrificing and being a real patriot when you ask a Hypothetical or, question like that, or a phony. I mean, I, you know, no, I don't yeah. know. Maybe you're yeah. a phony. Maybe. Um, okay, I, I'll say this. <laughs> Maybe it would be more important to me personally. I don't know what I could do to move the meter in relation to the White House. I mean, if Trump gets elected, we're going to be happy. But in the grand scheme of things, does your life get fundamentally better? I understand the patriotic disposition of wanting to make America great again. I mean, I get that. I, I'm all about that. But personally, personally. It would be a lot more fun to wake up with, um, well, let's say Joe Biden is president, but the uh, the state house flying a Gamecock flag on behalf of the football. That would be um, fun. National champion. I mean, that would be fun. I had a little fun last night. Um, it dawned on me late yesterday afternoon because I told you, and I mean this sincerely, and I stand by this. I am as big a Gamecock fan as I've ever been in my life. I'm far less resentful of other programs. I mean, there, there would have been a day in my life heading into Friday afternoon, um, Josh, that I would have taken the 10 most important things that I need to happen that weekend and Clemson losing, Georgia losing, North Carolina losing. I mean, they would have been up on my on my list. Now it's, um, will, will I find a good parking spot at the restaurant my wife and like, like, like to go eat brunch on Saturday mornings? <laughs> you see where I'm headed? I mean, I, I guess age. There you go. I mean, age. <laughs> I don't know, resituate your priorities. So during football season, the Gamecocks winning is still high on my list. The Tigers losing is nowhere near as high on my list as it once was. I mean, it's just not. Yeah. Who, who um, needs that negative energy well, I mean, in it, our lives it, it, anyway? Well, I mean, it was kind of our claim to fame for a long time. Right. You know, misery loves company. Right. And we suck, but, you know, maybe, maybe y'all can suck as bad as yeah. we do. Um, <laughs> but, but and I still, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to misrepresent. You ready? I, I've never pulled for Clemson. The closest I've ever come to pulling for Clemson is when they played North Carolina. Remember, we asked a question to Clemson fans. Is there a team out there that when the Gamecocks play, you find yourself pulling against South Carolina less than normal? 
and the Clemson fans can fight at Tennessee. I mean, that that would be the team. Well, North Carolina's that team for me. So with the Gamecocks and Tar Heels, excuse me, when the Tigers and Tar Heels are playing, I'm like, okay, have at it. I mean, it really doesn't bother me one way or the other. Um, but I put a question on Facebook late yesterday evening, probably too late to get um, adequate response. I thought I got a lot of response from Clemson fans. 12 of the top 13 football teams in America today will next year be in one of two conferences. Florida State is the only team in the top, I think it's 13 teams in the um, in the BCS poll that aren't going to be are or will be in the SEC or Big Ten. All four of the playoff teams next year will be in the Big Ten or SEC. All four Heisman finalists will be in the Big Ten or the SEC. And we talked to Jason Priester about this a bit. You know, if given the opportunity to, to, to I mean, if one conference and the other, I mean, if one or the other, your your choices are limited. In other words, if the, um, if the Big Ten extended an invitation to Clemson and the SEC did not, I mean, that's a no-brainer. You accept the invitation to the Big Ten and you just get accustomed to going to Wisconsin and um, Northwestern and Ohio State and Michigan, and you adapt. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, but if given the opportunity, if the SEC and Big Ten hypothetically extended invitations to Clemson tomorrow to come join one conference or the other, which would it be? And I understand the SEC resentment. I mean, the Clemson fans feel like the Gamecock fans have enjoyed the benefit of something they have no hand in generating. And to be honest with you, to some degree, we've been somewhat freeloading for a long time. And uh, not freeloading. I mean, we've carried our own. We've just not been a top-half football program in the long run. But it was surprising to me how many Clemson fans responded by saying, well, I mean, because I'm a Southerner, I'd rather be in the SEC. I don't like the notion of having to, you know, buy season tickets and maybe pick up a road game or two and travel to wherever it is the Big Ten, um, you know, has. I mean, the Big Ten is going to have Washington and Oregon, and it's already got Penn State and, uh, you know, Nebraska is another Big Ten team. Uh, it was just interesting to me, overwhelmingly, the Clemson fans that I quote-unquote polled are saying that they would rather be in the SEC than uh, the Big Ten. That proves to me that they're willing to put their bias aside. In other words, they're really, it's resentment is what it is. The SEC just means more. Tired of that. I mean, I don't have any Clemson fans tell me I'm tired of that nonsense. I get it. I mean, I understand it. If I wanted the SEC, I'd be tired of it. It is a marketing monster is what it is. Um, And they're kind of sort of proud of of that. But but anyway, um, to me, I mean, if I were a Clemson fan, if I were a Clemson fan, it would be a no-brainer for me, but I think my view is probably skewed by having been a fan of a team that has long-standing uh, relationships in the um, in the SEC. So that's I mean, I reached out via social media and just said, "Okay, Clemson fans, respectfully and out of curiosity, just and because I you this, wanted to know, but I, I just it interests me to know where their fan base is um, because I don't know how you can deny that there. I mean, there aren't five power conferences anymore." I mean, if 12 of the top 13 are in two conferences, if all Heisman finalists are in two conferences, if the uh, if the playoffs are dominated by two conferences, how is there a power five? There, There's not. I mean, the Pac-12 is not a power five conference anymore. Um, 
I guess the ACC still is because they hadn't been, been, you know, I mean, they didn't lose Oregon and Washington. And I mean, I think they're adding Stanford and California. That's pretty odd. The Atlantic Coast. Let me check the oceans. Okay. You got one. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at Maine, right? I'm looking at a map of um, and Maine's on my right. California's on my left. Stanford's Stanford in California. A closer to the University of California, obviously in California. And they're joining the Atlantic Coast Conference. Okay. Okay. Oh, but they're scurrying is what they are. They're mm-hmm. trying to save face in some way, shape, or form. And I have no idea where this ends up. But um, but if given the opportunity to be in one or the other conference, the Clemson fans that responded to my curious and respectful Facebook posts clearly, clearly want to be in the Southeastern Conference. And I think that makes uh, the most sense. Now, now, I'll say this. If you're an SEC guy and you're being strategic about where to increase your footprint, there's only two states that interest, I guess, the SEC brass, and that would be North Carolina and Virginia. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Um, if the state, if North Carolina and Virginia or NC State and Virginia Tech or any combination of two of those four were to show an interest in joining the SEC and the SEC was in expansion mode, I think the SEC would be more inclined to I kind of go after a school in North Carolina 15 million people and a school in, in Virginia, what, 10 or 11 million people to increase, believe it or not, um, subscriber units, more eyeballs watching games on, on television. Also included, because there, there's been this big brouhaha about college football, the state of college football, and they're blaming the, the, the collectives. They're blaming the, the deals well, going bad. Well, this transfer portal thing is, is crazy this year. I don't think I've, I've well, I mean, the game expected. Cost, the Gamecocks had a good day yesterday in the portal. I mean, they, they, they retained some linemen yeah. that, um, I mean, they aren't all SEC. And but I'm not just are, talking about the Gamecocks. I'm just talking about in general. I mean, how many players went into the portal yesterday? But, Rev, if a, if a, if, if, and this is the crux of my argument. If, if the NCAA, go read, and I'm serious, but if you love college football, go read the Austin case. Austin, A-L-S-T-O-N versus NCAA. And read some of the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh opinions. They basically said that the business of college football violated every free market principle America's ever held true and, and important. I mean, they, they, the, the, the NCAA basically argued that, yeah, you're right, we don't pay the performers, but our model is based on not paying the performers. And who gave them legal advice? Who convinced them that they were going to win in a court of law? There is no way they were going to win in a court of law. And they paid lawyers and they dug in and they paid lawyers and they dug in. Why? Because I think they're a bunch of arrogant dinosaurs. I mean, I think the people that run college football are a bunch of arrogant dinosaurs. And instead of giving an inch, the courts forced them to give a mile. Is it the wild, wild west? Is it good for college football? No. I mean, it's not good for college football when a player at said university gets a guaranteed deal, quote, unquote, and then decides on his own volition that I'm not going to play in the last two or three games because I may injure myself. I mean, you know, you've got unscripted rules now. The NCAA is not the NFL. The NFL has a construct that takes care of some of those um, imbalances and disproportionalities. But but it's just I mean the the college the, the the game left the player in the dark, and once the player who had no leverage at all 
gets himself in a position of having a lot of leverage, he's going to obviously overplay his hand. Now, I once again, I hope we get back to equilibrium before we do permanent damage to the game. Because I hear right. this from fans. Like, I don't I don't want to, I mean, you know, the days of, you know, the um, the student athlete, the amateurism, I mean, the days of that. But, but guys, remember this now. Does an amateur coach, does the coach of an amateur athletics team make $10 million a year? Of the Clemson offensive line coach, I didn't say offensive coordinator. The Clemson offensive line coach just signed a $3 million, $3.275 million three-year deal. I mean, how do you argue that an offensive, a position coach makes a million dollars a year, but the kid getting the scholarship is, you know, proportional to what the university receives, the NCAA generates and receives and, and divvies up? No. I mean, the kid deserved a bigger piece of the pie. And they're getting, maybe they're getting too large a slice of the pie now. And that, I mean, it's going to take smart people to put Humpty Dumpty back together again and get to a place of equilibrium. What does, and I think that's what you're asking, what, what is fair for the student athlete? Well, I mean, do we right. know the old way wasn't fair. I mean, I think anybody right. of reason would say, okay, as much as I love the game of college football, as, I love, as much as I love amateurism and student athletics, uh, that's not fair. I mean, when an offensive line coach is getting a million dollars a year to coach the offensive line, and, and you're telling the kid, hey, you big 300-pounder you, I mean, you're getting this education. Well, I mean, maybe they graduate, maybe they don't. Maybe the university makes it important for the kid to graduate, maybe they don't. We're looking for a place of equilibrium. But I mean, there's no doubt about it. The, 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 the former model was corrupt. The current model is unsustainable. And I hope there are smart enough people who care enough, genuinely care about the state of college football to get to work and try to police and address. And, it's, and I'm not a big friend. I'm, I'm not a fan of big government. But you heard me Friday when Philip and Jay left some of the ideas I have mm-hmm. about NIL legislation that Missouri's already done, a couple of other states have already done. We're going to have to look to lawmakers to put up some guardrails and say, you know, hey, you can do this, but you can't do that. Uh, maybe a little bit of this, maybe a little bit of that. But the NIL transfer portal and the conference realignments are fundamentally, fundamentally reshaping the landscape of college football. And it was interesting to me to hear Clemson fans, not Gamecock fans, tell Clemson fans what they should think, not Clemson fans telling Gamecock fans what they should think. But in a respectful and curious fashion, uh, it was pretty obvious to me that the majority of Clemson fans believe the SEC makes a lot more sense for them than going off out of the Big Ten. But we don't live in a Power Five world. But there are two power conferences in America today. One's kind of dominated the Midwest. One is South, Southeast, beginning to creep out a little bit, Oklahoma, Texas. Oklahoma in particular, Missouri would not be in the South, uh, so to speak. But anyway, um, just kind of an interesting, I'm not king of the world. I certainly don't extend invitations to major conferences. I just, you know, like kicking the can of um, hypotheticals, excuse me, and theoreticals. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Rick and Marion. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, as a Clemson fan, I personally would rather be Big Ten versus SEC, assuming the money was equal. I don't know that for a fact. It's about equal, Rick. I mean, I think one gets the best of one for two or three years via the TV deal. The other conference signs a new deal, and they get. So it kind of it's back and forth with the money. So the reason I think we would do better there is 
what makes us any different if we go SEC? Just another Southern team in there, and you know, being uh, an also ran in the SEC eight and four, say, just doesn't mean more to me. I would rather go Big Ten, where I think on good years, not this year for sure, I think we could hold our own and be one of the uh, teams that makes the playoff in a, you know, I'm going to say the word consistently, but, you know, frequently. And that does mean more to me. Having been through that last few years, that's a whole other level of football when you're in that. I just don't think we would do as well. And I don't mean that. I mean, SEC is awesome. But, you know, I look at the lineup and look at the style of football. And if I'm sitting there talking to a recruit, I'm the coach, I say, hey, listen, we're going to play in front of all your friends and family, but you can live in the South. Well, everybody in the SEC can say the same thing. So we have no – we're different up there is what I'm saying. That that would be my opinion. Gotcha. Thank you, Rick. appreciate that. It's kind of an interesting perspective. Why go to a league full of teams kind of sort of like we are? I mean, I get that. Now, now the, the counter argument to that, if I were cross-examining Rick, I'd say, yeah, but, I mean – what what about a fan base that gets to go in a car, get in a car and go to Athens and watch your Tigers play the Bulldogs or drive to Knoxville and watch your Tigers play, uh, you know, um, Tennessee or drive to Lexington to watch your Tigers play uh, or drive to Tuscaloosa or Auburn, Alabama or Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I mean, I understand it. I mean, it would be, you know, six, one, half dozen, um, the other. That's another interesting proposal we could offer. What is a fair record? for Clemson to aspire to have in the SEC? I mean, is it, Rick said, eight and four. I don't think Clemson fans would be happy eight and four in any league. I mean, they, they won. Historically, they've won a lot of football games. They've competed for championships. I think the, the fair-minded Clemson fan will accept that they're a bit of a misfit. I mean, they, they're a, a, a football-oriented, um, you know, football-culturally-dominated university in a league that other than Florida State, nobody has that mindset. Nobody is of that ilk in the ACC. If you come to the SEC, I mean, there are a lot of Clemsons. I mean, they, you know, that that's the struggle with South Carolina football. I'm a Gamecock. I'm a lifer. Um, the grind of the SEC. I mean, I've always said when the Gamecocks have had good years of the SEC, I mean, the Spurrier years come to mind, and he was a football savant. He was a great um, head coach. But if you look back on the Spurrier years, other than Marcus Lattimore, they stayed healthy. But they stayed healthy. But um, in that league, it's such a grind. You don't get to come up for air and catch your breath and play uh, other than Vanderbilt. You just don't get many patsies. I mean, you got to be ready to play about every Saturday, the depth of the league. Now, now, you know, in fairness, I'll argue today that the SEC is top-heavy. I mean, I think Alabama and Georgia – or a lot better than anybody else in the SEC. And I'm talking about the last three, four, five years. Who's the third best team of the SEC? I mean, I asked that question to my SEC brethren. Um, who's the third best team? What's the third best program? That would be a better question. The third best program in the SEC today, I think personally, is probably LSU. I mean, year in and That's year out. I, I mean, Ole Miss is, is on a good trajectory because they hired Lane Kiffin, and he's a good offensive-minded football coach. Um, but you got Georgia, Alabama, and they're elite. I mean, they, there is no doubt about it. They they are they are recruiting at a level and playing at a level that very few teams are able to sustain. Yeah, traditionally, you'd you'd have to throw Texas A and M into that well, I mean, discussion, but, but, but not recently. And 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 I'll tell you this: in twenty one of the last twenty five years, Texas A and M's lost four football games. 
They shouldn't. I mean, they, you know, it's a little bit like the Gamecock faithful. I tell people that Texas A&M is an underachiever, as much an underachiever as South Carolina. They just have a higher ceiling. Right. I mean, we're both underachievers. I'm sorry, Gamecock Nation. We are as much an underachiever as any college football program in America. Rabid fan base, you know, um, perfect part of the country, uh, aligned with the conference, you know, one of the two conferences that offer you the most opportunity to succeed, and we just consistently underachieve. Um, that goes back to my institutionalized mediocrity that I think we've um, come to accept. Texas a and similar to that. Their ceiling is a game and a half better than ours, but they, I mean, Texas A&M should be in a, in a 14 playoff about every fourth or fifth year. I mean, they should with, with the revenue and the fan base and the conference affiliation, the recruiting in the state of Texas, but they just don't get it done for whatever reason. So, so here's my question to Clemson faithful. If I believe, and I think Clemson fans will accept this, that Georgia and Alabama are the most elite programs in, in, in the SEC today, LSU's the third, maybe Ole Miss uh, in there somewhere. Now, once again, does Ole Miss have staying power? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, Lane Kiffin's a really good coach. They kind of roll in a little bit, a little bit like when Spurrier was at South Carolina. Is um is Ole Miss on one of these upward trajectories that can't stay that way, but for for so long? We know LSU recruits at an elite level. So is Clemson? I mean, is Clemson better or or not as good as Ole Miss? Better or not as good as Tennessee? I mean, I think Clemson's easily upper third of the SEC on day one. I mean, they've got the culture that they've got. The Clemson has never accepted. You ready? The institutionalization of mediocrity. The Gamecocks have. Now, but I'm sorry. I bleed garnet. The Gamecocks have accepted the institutionalization of mediocrity. Clemson never has, and I argue never will. Let's go to the phone. Larry in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Larry. Hey, good morning, y'all. Um, Ken, you're right on what I wanted to speak about. I just recently read about Clemson, let two more coaches go, and they – you know, and, and again, South Carolina, they're just going to get pushed further and further down the SEC with uh, these other teams that possibly will come in. And I, I just don't get it. We we accept what you just got through saying. I won't even add nothing to it. That we're we're happy to win eight games uh, every five years and, and then, you know, win five or six games. And I've been a Gamecock fan, you know, for 40 years. Used to have season tickets during the Spurrier area. That was a fun time. But I, I just see, you know, they just accept. I mean, I think Beamer's a great cheerleader and all of that. But I, I don't know. I think maybe he might be over his head because he, he or he can't make those decisions. I don't know what. But anyway, that that was all. I just wanted to feed off of what you've been talking about. And uh, more teams get into SEC if Florida State or Clemson, that we're just going to get shoved further down. We'll be the Vanderbilt that is now. But anyway, thank you. Thank you. Unless they hire, um, I mean, I've, I've argued, and it's um, it's just probably more important to be than it should be. I'm sure it is. The the opportunity South Carolina has, and I and I'll tell, I mean, I told Rev during the break as we're talking about Beamer. I mean, the 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 jury's still out on on Shane. I mean, it, we don't know yet. The one thing that Dabo did that I don't know if Shane will do. And it's his call. It's not mine. Dabo knew what he didn't know. Dabo knew that he got an opportunity out of out of left field. He never imagined that Bowden would get fired in the middle of that season and they would reach out to Dabo Sweeney and say, you want to be the interim coach? 
And, and I think Sweeney will always forever be connected to, to Spurrier because I don't think if Dabo wins that game that year, they retain him as head football coach. But what Dabo did was, I mean, he, he, he cuts ties with some coaches that he wasn't certain about. Now, now, here's what I think is the fundamental difference. And once again, I'm, I'm speculating, and I guess I'm being somewhat of a, uh, a provocative media personality, but Dabo had been hungry. I mean, he knew what it was like to be uncertain about his financial future. Uh, we know the stories of he and his mom and, you know, um, d- desperate financial. When Dabo was given the opportunity, uh, internally, I think he said, I'm not, I'm not letting this get away. I'm not going to, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure I succeed. And he got rid of coaches very early on in his tenure. Will Shane do that? I don't know. I mean, there, there's some, dis- to me, as a fan, longtime fan, somewhat of an insight, to me, there are deficiencies on that staff that have to be addressed sooner than later. Say that again. There are deficiencies on that staff that have to be addressed sooner than later. Dabo addressed those very aggressively. Will Shane address those as aggressively? Oh, no. Take a break. <laughs> Back in a few. 843-661-0937. See, we can be civil. We can be respectful to one another. I mean, oh, in, the, in, the, in the spirit of Jesus, right? I mean, it's Christmas season. <laughs> Jesus brought about, you know, um, salvation and peace. And, and I mean, we can do some of this. Orange and Garnet doesn't have to argue with one another every single waking moment of their uh, ever-loving lives. But uh, to your point about, you know, what will Shane do? You know, as far as coaches, you know, Clemson didn't mess around. I mean, Dabo Clemson took care doesn't of mess around. Dabo wasn't going back I mean, to that single wide he, mobile. He's home. already replaced the coaches that he wanted to replace, and the season's been over what a few days, mm-hmm. a week. But 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 give give Dabo, give Shane a little benefit of the doubt. Beamer's never been a head coach until this is his third year. Dabo's an old hand at this. I mean, Dabo had to learn some things. My point is, even in the early days. Dabo made he was a, he was a person of conviction. I mean, he, he fired Billy Napier, and and basically Napier was a good friend of Dabo's. And Dabo said, "Look, you can't learn to be an OC and me learn to be a head coach simultaneously. I mean, I've got to learn to be a head coach." And and Dabo just very aggressively addressed some of the issues the staff had, and 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 the jury's still out whether Shane will aggressively address. If we go into next year with the same coaching staff we have today, I have serious concerns. Now, if Shane right. in the next week Me or too. two uh, addresses some of the deficiencies that I think we have as a coaching staff, then I'll feel a little bit better about it. But, I mean, you know, can, can, can Shane grow into be a highly successful head football coach? You ready? I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. I mean, I'm pulling for I, him. I want him to. He's our guy. Heck I mean, yeah. he's the guy we hired, and I want him to be. But but the larger question, the, the macro is the state of college football. Yeah. I mean, that, that's you, kind you of the have macro. Any idea? I mean, you're you're good at big picture. What I mean, where, where does where does college football what I mean, go? Personally, and I've said this before, and people at the university know I feel about this. They don't care how I feel, but they know how I feel because I make sure they know how I feel. And I talk to those folks a good bit. You know that. Um, I think the university or two or three or four or five or six that decide to adopt this NFL model that really and truly begin to staff a front office. Hey, what's what's the NFL model? Well, I mean, it's, got a, it's got a football CEO. It's got a chief financial officer. You've got a head talent evaluator. You've got three or four other talent evaluators. You're very familiar. You talked about the transfer portal. I mean, I heard yesterday that South Carolina may pick up five or six players outside of their roster from the transfer portal. They've got to get better at running back and wide receiver. 
I mean, they've got to get better at running back and wide receiver. If you had an NFL front office, you'd have a talent evaluator watching film on the Oklahoma five-star running back that wants out of there. Why does he want out of Oklahoma? I don't know. Don't care. I don't have any idea. I know he's 6'1", 220, and runs a 4'440". He's in the transfer portal. I would have a, a, a very good understanding of what his value is. The college football's headwind is going to be this, Reb. There's going to be too much disparity between the haves and have-nots. I mean, that's just that's where, where we're going to end up. Um, you can't have that. You can't have a game that uninteresting, that, that lacks that kind of intrigue. You know one of the good things to happen to college football? The Florida State-Alabama fiasco. I mean, it makes it interesting. People are intrigued by, well, damn it, Florida State should have gone. They're talking about it on news well, be shows. Sure, I saw it on Fox so, News so, this so morning. In a, in a sport that has been so predictable, you've got this, um, this storyline that people find intriguing. In all honesty, in the grand scheme of things, I know this sounds lousy. It doesn't matter who needs to go. The game needs to be interesting. The game needs to be intriguing. If not, it's going to be a niche sport. It's going to be a little bit like... Um, I don't want to say hockey or NASCAR. It's not that niche but it's not going to be, it's not going to ever challenge the NFL or some of these other highly, highly popular sports. And I just don't want that to happen. But if you leave it like it is today, and if you don't put any guardrails on the NIL and no guardrails on transfer portal, Texas, Texas A&M, Ohio State, Michigan, Southern Cal, I mean, they'll just buy a roster. I mean, they'll poach your players because they can. So there's got to be some guidance given to this new era of college football, there's a reason the NFL lets the worst team draft first and the best team draft last. There's a reason the NFL has salary caps. They want highly competitive games. They want fan bases for the entire season believing their team has a chance to make the playoff. The NFL is accepted they're in the entertainment business. College football has to now accept. One of the smart things I said a couple of years back, and I remember I wrote it down, you don't pay Aaron Rodgers $25 million a year to throw a football. You pay Aaron Rodgers $25 million a year to entertain people. And the game has to be entertaining and intriguing and have storylines. And if we allow the wild, wild west to become the normal and, and way forward, the teams with the most money will have a larger advantage than they've ever had. And the Gamecocks and Tigers will. I mean, they're in the halves. I mean, the Gamecocks and Tigers are in the class of halves. I mean, they're, they're not in the have-nots, but but the, I don't know, Rev, the disparity between those who can spend unlimited amounts of money to buy whomever they choose to buy and uh, and eventually, you know, pay off on the on the field makes the game so much less interesting, so much less intriguing. Let's go to the phone. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. Good morning. I, I, I doubt there's any truth to this, but uh, somebody told me Cocky entered the transfer portal. That's discouraging <laughs> right there. Uh, the only option he's got is Jacksonville State. Bless his heart. I, I hope he stays with us. But uh, <laughs> between the transfer portal and the NIL, college football's just changed, Ken. I mean, drastic, I, I feel like. And uh, now I was, pu- I called about this. I was pulling for Bama to win just, just to shake things up. Um, and, and they did. <laughs> All Georgia had to do was win. Just win, Georgia. Georgia wins. Everything's fine. Nobody's talking about it. Oh, but Bama got to mess things up. And uh, it, it almost seems to me like the fair thing, which is unheard of, is leaving SEC team out, put an undefeated conference champion in in Florida State. And uh, because if you're in the NFL, okay, and you're in the playoffs, the playoffs are set, and your quarterback gets injured, 
Roger Goodell is not going to say, well, no, um, we need to replace that team with another team with a good quarterback. No, Th- that team went undefeated. Okay, maybe they had a f- some cupcakes along the way. But they can't help with – you can only play who you play, and you beat who you beat. And uh, so, I mean, Florida State – Florida State fans have got to be livid, you know. And um, now what I want to know is if Alabama wins a national championship with one loss and they have to beat Texas, who already beat them, which means they're not proving they're better because it's not two out of three. And then and then I doubt this could happen, but what if Florida State beats Georgia by more than three points? Then you got a Florida State fan base that they're going to riot. I mean, it's and, and that's what I'm pulling for. I'm pulling for Florida State to win by 10 and Alabama to end up the champions with one loss just to shake it up. And, and I'm so ready for I – I think 12 was too much, but eight would have been – I think would have been better because nobody gets a bye. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, re- I'm ready for more teams in it. it it's going to dilute the regular season maybe a little bit, um, but I'm so ready for that. But you ain't heard nothing about Cox leaving, have you? We'll um we'll we'll get him an NIL deal. We'll hold on to him. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. We'll, At um, all costs, please. Yeah, we'll um, but, but, but Boudreaux made a point, and I want to get, stay here, Josh. Give me two seconds. Boudreaux said the right thing to do. That committee was not charged with doing the right thing. I mean, the committee's marching orders were find the four best teams and put them in this playoff. And it's hard to argue that today Alabama's not better than Florida State. Now, now with their quarterback, that's a fair debate. That that is an honest. And, and you could talk yourself into one or the other. But the, the committee was not charged with doing what's right and, and the most fair thing. The committee was told, find the four best teams. And I think they got it right. The only thing, team that I think has a legitimate beef today is Georgia. I mean, it's hard to argue to me that Georgia is not one of the four best teams in college football. So best, right, um, deserving, undeserving, conference alignments on you know but it's good for the game when we're talking about it it's intriguing there are storylines here there are you know uh it, it'll be better next year imagine a clemson carolina game i mean i talked to a good clemson buddy of mine yesterday imagine next year in death valley i mean i don't know this happens but imagine if it did imagine that um the gamecocks address their wide receiver and their running back position to the portal let's say they get a um a hot shot from lsu who's the backup but he's better than anybody in Columbia. He gets here, sets the world on fire. Lenore Sellers has the best freshman year any Gamecock quarterback has ever had. Clemson fixes some of their problems. They go to the portal, find a wide receiver. Um, you know, they're D-line, they're, they're D-back. I mean, they're, they're lead on defense. Anyway, you go into next year in Death Valley, Clemson is number eight in the country. South Carolina is number 15 in the country. You're playing for a shot to be in a 12-team playoff. I mean, you really and truly are. I mean, if the Gamecocks are ranked 15th, but there's nobody that expects South Carolina to be a top 10 team uh, year after year. I think they should and could if they made the commitment I'm talking about. But but they've been a top 15, 20 team throughout their period. I mean, not, not every year. I'm not arguing that every year. But, you know, that that's kind of where their their high watermark seems to be. Now, outside of the, the Spurrier years, they had three years in the top 10. But, but if you looked at a good year for South Carolina football, it's 15 in the country. Well, you go on the road to play a top 10 team, and you're number 15 of the country, and you win on the road against a top 10 team, you know what we'll argue next year? We need to be one of the 12 teams. You may end right. up being 13. You may end up being 11. But the game is interesting. The sport is intriguing. The Gamecock fan base will never forget 
the year they went to Clemson and beat an eighth-ranked Tiger team and got left out of the 12-team playoff. Are you see where I'm headed? Yeah. I mean, they're Gives intriguing you stories. You better believe it. For I mean, years. The game, the game becomes far more interesting. And if we don't address NIL and, and, uh, and some of the money influences, it, it's going to be the same four, five, six teams year after year after year. And that's just not good for the sport of college football. Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us this morning. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good, sir. How are you? I am doing well. Anytime I hear major climate summit, being a conservative, I get nervous and alarmed. <laughs> I'm hoping you can put me at ease. Um, what I read yesterday, Ryan, was the United States is kind of leading the charge in making this big commitment to, and these are the words, phase out oil. Am I am I on to something here? Uh, well, you are exactly right in terms of what you're reading. That, that's what it sounds like the plan is. You have climate envoy John Kerry uh, essentially saying that the United States is committed to making the full transition and phasing out coal power plants in the near future. Uh, they did not give a timeline for when this is, but the commitment's there. What qualifies John Kerry to direct <laughs> American energy policy? Yeah, I mean, he was appointed by the Biden administration. It's a fairly new position that he's in. The climate envoy is kind of what they call it. But, you know, this is a, a job that I don't think anybody has had in the history of the United States. This is uh, an exclusive position to the Biden administration. But, you know, John Kerry's been one of the loudest voices, you know, in, in, in government for some time when it comes to this issue. And that's why President Biden appointed him to the position. Ron, who has to be on board with this? I mean, if we're phasing out coal which is a monumental decision for the largest economy in the world to make. I mean, do they have any of the infrastructure, human infrastructure in place that, that helps accomplish this task? Well, I think, I think there, there are a lot of things that are going to factor into that. And I still have a lot of questions around how this works, too, because, yes, I, I don't think it's a secret that coal plants are struggling. It, you know, its percentage of how much it contributes to the energy infrastructure of the United States has gradually dropped over the last decade or so. Uh, but the, the question is, how much of that, where's that transition going to? Is it natural gas, which we don't really know how, uh, you know, into that the administration is, or is it into the, the wind and solar, which the administration talks about quite substantially? I think those are all kind of the question marks when it comes to the transition. You know, is the administration okay with that transition involving natural gas and fracking? Because, you know, progressives strongly oppose that. But, you know, is the administration more open to it? Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. Hey, thank you. Have a good one. Um, did somebody hold on to the break? <laughs> yeah. I've been just laughing at the question you asked a serious reporter at Fox News. What qualifies John Kerry? Well, I mean, John Kerry and Bill Gates have been the most outspoken. I mean, I don't know if you saw this or not, but over the weekend, Gates said that the world is about to smash through this critical warming threshold, I think is his terminology. So uh, Bill Gates builds software. John Kerry yeah. made a rich woman, and they're giving, <laughs> you know, the right. direction of our climate um, policy <laughs> and, in America. And they both fly around on private jets. They do. They do. Um, emitting enormous amounts of exactly. CO2. Let's exactly. go to the phone. Here's Joe in Georgetown. Hey, Joe, thanks for holding on. Thank you. Good morning, guys. I wanted to get on before liberal Jeff got on. I, I wanted to help you out a little bit, Ken, if I could. Um, you know, most of your listeners probably don't want to listen to him interview you each and every day. I guess he gets up every morning, uh, jumps on the Internet, and grabs the liberal talking points and gets ready to 
see if he can get you to agree with him. I don't know if he has an actual normal idea of, in his head at all. But these are some questions which uh, I think not only me but your listeners would love for you to ask Jeff. Does he own an electrical vi- electric vehicle? Why not if he doesn't? Does he eat beef? Does he think he is better off with Biden during Biden's presidencies? Does he think Biden is corrupt? Does he want his children, grandchildren to be taught CRT in school and coerced into changing their sex while they're at school? These are just some of the questions I think not only me but others would like for him to answer and not just come on and just try to get you to answer his predetermined questions and answers. So anyway, we would really know why he is a liberal. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Uh, Mm -hmm. 843-661-0937. I think we've asked Jeff before if he owns an EV, and he said he does not. Yeah, and, and, you know, the point, I mean, the, the... the agreement yesterday, in my opinion, I mean, the, the only thing I agreed with Jeff is I don't want to lose my job. Um, the only thing I agreed with Jeff on behalf of is we're always innovating. We're, we're always trying to find a better way to do X, Y, or Z. It's called capitalism. I mean, capitalism rewards people. They're rewarded financially when you come up with a better way to do whatever it is you decide to do. Once again, I believe the best illustration is the blacksmith. I got to believe that when the blacksmith was putting a shoe on a horse and saw one of these first jalopies come down the road, smoking and clanking and whatever it, it was doing, I got to believe he kind of laughed under his breath. Well, that's a fad. That, that, that'll, that'll never work. But then he sees another and another and another and another, and they're not clanking as much. They're not smoking as much. They're, they're becoming more popular. At some point in time, if he's a smart blacksmith and a, and a shrewd business person, you know what he does? He puts a for sale sign in the blacksmith's window because he's accepted that capitalism unleashes human capital and allows human beings to find better ways to do whatever it is we're trying to do, you know, better. And I think human transportation, uh, mobility is a big deal. It's a part of our human experience. Um, I mean, I wish I could snap my fingers and get to work, but I can't have to drive across town. Um, I mean, I, you know, the Concorde. Would be a good example. The Concorde was a supersonic aircraft that never became economically feasible. People decided it's not worth that much more money to get to London that much quicker. I mean, that's a fact of commerce. I mean, that's the way the free market works. If the if the Concorde had become less expensive, if they could have figured out a, a better way to have a supersonic jet going from you know the transatlantic flights and but in, instead of let's say a first class, well, excuse me. Let's say a um a what do you call it? What what is it? What what's the normal class when you fly? I mean uh, coach class. Yeah, coach class. I mean, let's say coach flying from New York to London is four hundred dollars, and it's four thousand to the Concorde. I'm not paying four thousand when I can fly to the same place four hundred. No matter how quickly and and more comfortable I can do it, but I'll pay some premium. I mean, I would pay something above and beyond four hundred dollars. And Jeff's argument is. You know, the government probably does need to encourage and foster and subsidize um, advancements in, in technology and, and, and aid. And I, I just don't buy that. I, I just don't believe that. I think the human, the, the, the human being left to its own volition and merit will figure out better ways free of some government order or edict. And I've always believed that. 
the great invention of the history of mankind were not in government nor in laboratories. I mean, they just were not. Uh, the greatest inventions in the history of mankind, those that have lifted the plot of average citizens of countries around the world, has been in the private sector. And what we're trying to do with the electric car is disrupt, manipulate, distort the private sector to a point of government deciding that they want people to drive this kind of car by this length of time, and we're, we're, we're destroying enormous amounts of capital. I mean, the, the, the shareholder money that GM and Ford have invested, I mean, it's been incentivized by the government, no doubt, but it's still unbelievable amounts of money that I think could have been spent doing better things for human transportation and mobility than, you know, following some government edict or order. But, but big business has created this give-and-take relationship with the government, and if the government encourages GM and Ford and Toyota and Hyundai and all these auto manufacturers to consider doing something a certain way, the government, that wink and nod, is kind of, um, it's, it's, one of the first, it's one of the first interactions business and government has today. Wink, nod, hey, if this thing doesn't work, we're going to be okay, aren't we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's not at the contract, but, yeah, you, you'll, be, you'll be fine. We'll figure this out together. And I just think we're all better off if we let the free market do its thing. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You know, I was just listening to that interview about climate crap. And, you know, and it goes back to what I keep saying, kid. Nobody can, if anybody that tells you that, that we're trying to get completely off oil and coal, it's sort of like quitting your job when you don't have another job waiting on you. You know what I'm saying? So we're going to get off all the coal, and uh, and they want to tell me that they have my best interests in, at heart there. And that goes back to what I was saying. That, you know, with, I don't think any Democrat candidate or Republican candidate out there for president has mine or your best interests at heart. And the truth of the matter is they should because we really are the majority my question to you is, Ken, how do we get the power that, that, that really should be ours? Because, well, I mean, they do to us pretty much whatever the hell they want to, and we're, and we're the majority. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they do what we don't want them to do, and we keep electing these same people on the Democrat and Republican side. I mean, I don't know what. Maybe the Democrats do want what they're getting. But it just frustrates the hell out of me. That Nagold, with a hundred of us out of Nagold, a hundred and one are saying this is stupid, but they do it anyway, and they keep doing things to harm us, and we just keep taking it. Everything they've done for the, for the longest time has been to harm us, not to help us, and, and we're supposed to. I guess we just stay drunk and all, uh, and, and, and watch sports on TV and just don't realize how bad we're getting screwed. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, but, but we've had this debate before, and I, Breeze asked the question. I mean, I, I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I, you know, I've got a lot of ideas on climate. I've got a lot of ideas on energy. I got a lot of ideas on debt. I don't run the joint. I mean, wh whether we like it or not, John Kerry and Bill Gates and Al Gore have enormous influence. I mean, I, I hear the frustration. I understand. I'm as frustrated as you are. Um, I. I the, the only thing that encourages me, and it's hard to be encouraged when you sit where I sit, stand where I stand, hear what I hear, um, believe what I believe. It's hard to be encouraged about anything 
relating to government. The only thing that I see that I'm encouraged by is Donald Trump's polling numbers. And it's not that I think Trump is some savior of the world. I mean, I don't. I don't, I don't buy that. Some of you do. I don't buy that. But he is an example of I, I'm going to I'm going to challenge the status quo. I'm going to try and disrupt whatever uh, political normalcy you believe there is. In, in other words, John Kerry's more likely to have a major hand in U.S. energy policy based on climate extremism if Trump's not the president. Now, I have no idea where Trump stands on climate change. I have no idea. He didn't talk much about that. I mean, he's, you know, um, he appointed Rex Tillerson as his first secretary of state. He's a big oil guy, former CEO of Exxon, but they parted ways, and Trump said he was dumb as a rock. I mean, I don't think that serves him well. <laughs> you know, but he says and does things that unorthodox. He, he says he's going to eliminate some of these crazy green policies well, should I mean, he get reelected. But, but he should. I mean, yeah. he, sh- he absolutely should do that. Um, I mean, because they are crazy. They're absolutely insane. The, the point I'm trying to make is in the macro. I don't know how to encourage you uh, by, by saying, hey, if enough of us rally around one another, we can take our government back. I mean, that, that's a bumper sticker. That's a campaign slogan. Josh, do you believe that? Do you believe if enough of us rally around one another with coherent thinking and, and, and some agenda item or two or three that we fundamentally believe is in all of our best interests, do you believe we can sway the government into doing something that the other side, and I'm talking about the Paul Ryan, uh, Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney world, um, because you've you got to remember, guys, that the majority of these people who have gotten wealthy have gotten wealthy by government working the way that they intend government to work. Um, Paul Ryan's not some genius entrepreneur. I mean, Liz Cheney's not some world-class business lady. I, I'm about to believe that Mitt Romney, what was more involved in playing the game than anybody else. But they, I'm not saying they're dumb. Uh, they're, they're probably smarter than the majority of us because they figured out a way to not have to work as hard. You know, it's easier to get government to agree or disagree or oppose or justify or whatever, whatever it is you're trying to get government to do. But I want Josh, I want to hold on to that. I know we got to take a break. But on, on the other side, I want Josh to answer that question. As a younger voter in America today, what encourages you to believe there's a chance that we could ultimately kind of swing the pendulum back in a way that government works for the average American citizen. Take a break. Back in a few. Okay, Josh, you had very little to offer on the SEC <laughs> Big Ten Clemson debate. Um, what, you see how I framed the question? Yeah. And, and the question is, what encourages a young voter like you, somebody who's right of center, somebody who has a conservative worldview, somebody who's under the age of 30, what, what encourages you or gives you a reason to be optimistic about voting, uh, voting certain candidates in certain offices in hopes or anticipation that they will serve the American people and not the special interest? Well, uh, it's, it's a little bit more complicated to your original question in the last segment than yes or no. So basically, I do believe that... Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at, but I do believe that there is, the do, government Do you believe is, the government fundamentally works and does things that it wishes to do despite what the American people believe yes. is in its best interest? Yes, okay. I okay. believe the government you, is you, self- you would agree that that's not the intent of government. I right. Mean, self-government is a reflection. That's when government reflects the interest and priorities of the American people. Yes. Okay. The government is... Um, 
or the American government is supposed to be, you know, for the people, by the people, of the people, and to serve the people. But uh, it's, it's, as it typically does, ascended into this club, and we're not in it. Now, I do believe that the some of the power does still lie with the people. It Even though it may not be as democratic as it should be, or Republican as it should be, uh, there is still some power lying with the people. Otherwise, you know, why would they need to pretend that they need your vote? You know, if if it just became like, a, okay, Paul Ryan, you can do absolutely whatever you want, he wouldn't need to go on TV and explain why you need to vote for Nikki Haley, be, you know, so that he can remain in power. It is kind of, it's kind of like uh, like acting, like being an actor where, you know, your your popularity is is what keeps you at the top. So so there is that aspect to it and I do believe that change can be made, but it can't be made in one election. It it the the sentiment has to be very um you, you know, it has to be very apparent. So and I think the Israel Palestine thing not to get into that debate, but is kind of an example of that where you do have you do have a lot of Jewish people in the American leadership uh, and and there's been this push for like uh, liberalism and progressivism over the past couple of years. And what have we gotten from that? You've gotten this vast uh, support for the Palestinian side of this debate, and 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 there's and now you're seeing this reaction to it. It's like whoa 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 we didn't want this. So so does that kind of sure is that does. a good example? Okay, of you? but but uh, serious question. You ready? Are the American have the American people become politically apathetic? Oh, yeah. Is that in the interest? Is that in the best interest? Because when you say Paul Ryan, here's my point. Ryan is not in power. Right. Ryan is close to power. Yes. But there's a little bit of difference there. I mean, Ryan doesn't chair a committee. Ryan's not a Speaker of the House any longer. When when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House and Republican nominee for Vice President, he was in power, technically in power. Now he's close to power. And he understands power. When Paul Ryan goes to Washington on behalf of whomever he's lobbying for, he doesn't waste his time going to see the wrong people. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows exactly who to go see and, and who to ask and, and some of the priorities that need to be done and, uh, and some of the bills that need to be passed, not for the American people. But, but wouldn't you agree that if Paul Ryan wants to maintain um, – a relationship with the power center, power structure, you know, those in power, he needs us to be more apathetic than we, he needs us to continue to be apathetic. I mean, would you agree to that? Yes. I mean, we're, we're, we're a little, we're a little easily misled if we aren't paying close enough attention. I mean, if that, if that guy that hosts a radio show in Florence, I mean, if he's talking about college football for an hour, I mean, he's not grinding on, he's not driving home this Trump agenda, this America first agenda, this political disruption that um that we talk about and that's where I want to go. Uh so do you, you've led me to believe that that as I do, you don't think Trump is a long-term solution. I mean, you don't think Trump gets elected in 2016, loses maybe in 2020, wins again in 24. You don't believe that Donald Trump getting reelected just completely solves all of our problems. No. Okay, you you believe there has to be a long sustaining, long commitment made by the American voter who doesn't believe it works on behalf. Because Rev asked an interesting question. Rev, or you may have asked it, who can believe today 
that the American government prioritizes our interest. I mean, I mean in all lot liberal, conservative, moderate, pragmatic, whatever, wherever you land on the political spectrum, how can you believe with any degree of, um, I mean, if you have any degree of understanding, I mean, I understand if you're just oblivious. And there are those. I mean, there are absolutely those on, on you know, in, in, in all walks of life that have no idea. They, they don't have a clue. They don't care. They don't give any ounce of energy or effort to better understand the government. Um, they do their thing. They live their lives probably happier than we do. In, in all honesty, I mean, I think they're not serving humanity as they should, but they're probably happier than we are because they've just decided, that, oh, whatever, you know, what, whatever happens, happens, and I'll be fine. I'll figure it out. I'll, you know, I'll, uh, I don't concern myself with it, care about it, want to get involved in it. But, but, but my, my hope is, and this is the only encouragement because you're in Breeze's voice, you're in mine a lot, the frustration. I mean, I, when you know something's happening and you accept there's nothing you can do about it, I'm mean, going imagine that. I mean, imagine you know something's happening and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, there's absolutely nothing you can, that's a hopeless and helpless feeling, right? And I think there are a lot of Americans that, that know the government doesn't serve its best interest. They know what Liz Cheney was up to, what Paul Ryan's about, what Mitt Romney meant or didn't mean. I mean they, they, they have such a, a clear understanding of that. But, but then on the, on, the, on the other side, they're saying, what do I do? I mean, do I really do I really believe that if I go to Precinct 12 in Sumter County and vote, it's going to fundamentally change? You, you look at the problem as this monumental issue, and you look at your vote as a gnat on a buffalo's ass. And we become very discouraged, and, and we become disenchanted, and we become apathetic. Right. And, and we begin saying, ah, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, I'll vote. And I'll well, care. I guess at some point you, you have to ask yourself, why does there s- seem to be so many people that are loud and make a lot of noise that aren't promoting individual liberties and freedoms? When you, you're talking about people in the, in the sphere of influence? All over. I mean, no. Uh, well, for one, yes. But, I mean, when you see protesters that are protesting for whatever they're protesting for, you know, it's like, okay, well, what you, well you're, you're sitting there protesting for this issue that's important to you, but that doesn't seem to be an issue that supports or promotes individual freedoms and liberties. Well, I mean, but but that, that would be the mind of a liberal, wouldn't it? I guess. I mean, wouldn't the, see, you can't relate to that. I can't relate to that. Uh, but I mean, the, the mind of a liberal believes, I mean, I don't have the words in Jeff's mouth, but I, I mean, Jeff led me to believe that he's quite comfortable in the government dictating what kind of car we're going to drive in five years. I mean, he didn't say that, but didn't he infer that yesterday? Yeah, no. I mean, was, I he, wasn't, he wasn't some madman yelling and screaming. No. I mean, he wasn't waving a banner saying Republicans go to hell. You know, I mean, I didn't hear any of that. But I think I, I saw a, a a degree of comfort in Jeff's voice that, yeah, I mean, yeah, the government's going to do this, but you got to understand why they're doing this. Um, my, my point is, and I'm not doing a good job of illustrating, my point is this. How do we as a country... I mean, if more of us believe that the government is self-dealing, self-serving, not looking after the average American, what do we do about it? The only thing that we know to do today is vote for Trump. And, and Rev, I dare say that the majority of Trump voters, that's why they're voting for Trump. I mean, I understand if you're in big oil and he wants to disband some of these green energy policies and do away with some of these regulations. I mean, you've got a vested interest. I mean, if you're in energy, and you've got Democrats wanting to curtail 
fossil fuels and replace it with some other green energy. I mean, you've got a vested interest there. But I think Joe Blow, Joe Sixpack, Jane Doe, I think the majority of support Trump has is they believe a vote for Trump is a vote against that power structure, that 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 in-house dealing that, you know, has become so much a part of it. We know what they're doing. We just feel helpless in being able to do anything about it. And Trump gave us an outlet. I mean, it's kind of a, um, he's cathartic. You know, I, I've often said, and I've read enough polls to know, the, the, big, ah, the big mistake that those who don't like Trump make is believing that every Trump voter likes him. I mean, I know a lot of Trump voters that don't care much for Trump personally. They would rather him behave another way and act another way and not say certain things a certain way. But they're so sure of their instinct. They're so, so sure of that impulse that government is not working for the American people. And if government's not working for the American people, why wouldn't I vote for this wild man? I mean, why wouldn't mm-hmm. I throw that grenade, that Molotov cocktail under the um, the stall of the bathroom at, you know, wherever? Uh, you see where I'm headed? What do we do when we know the game is rigged, but we don't believe we have any ability at all to unrig it? I mean, in essence, isn't that kind of what we're arguing? We know the game is rigged. Rev knows the game is rigged. Josh knows the game is rigged. I know the game is rigged. I've helped rig the game. What do the American people believe? What do they what, what do they believe their their limitations are in what they can do to try and help unrig the game? And right now, Trump is front and center. Take a break. Yeah. Back in a few. We're screwed and nothing we can do about it. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind yeah of, thanks for the uplifting <laughs> yeah, subject today. The summation of the last segment, we're all screwed and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, the, the, the advantage you and I have, Rev, is we're screwed for a shorter period of time than Josh is. Yeah, that sounds like an advantage. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. I guess there's silver lining there. Thanks a lot. Here's uh, Jacob and Florence. Morning, Jacob. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. As always, it's a, a great show, and thank you for bringing me on. Uh, I, I hope I can offer some words of encouragement because I know there's a lot of bad to uh, talk about, and I hear the the voices of frustration, but uh, there's two ways to look at this problem as far as, uh, you know, politics and, and how the system is rigged. Uh, Ken, you're the seasoned uh, professional politician, so I won't, I won't delve into the, the political aspect of this here because, you know, I respect you too much, so I won't pretend to, to know much about that game. But I will speak about the spiritual side of this. And, and it goes back. It goes back to this being a, a battle of good versus evil. It's a, it's a, we have to look at this spiritually. So the left, and, and when I say the left, I'm talking about those people, those groups that hate God, that hate humanity, that hate everything that is good and want us to go down a path of evil, of per- about those people. Now, it seems like the Democrat Party has gone in that direction. It, it didn't used to be that way, but it, it, it looks like they were taken over by these leftists, these communists. So I, I think we should really call them the Democratic Communist Party. All right. And then on the other side, you have the Republicans. Well, anyway, the, these leftists want us to give up. They, they know they're rigging the system. So they want us to be defeated. They want us to, to feel like there's no chance. And, and when you're defeated, you become a self-defeating person. So here's my, here's my words of encouragement and advice. 
don't give up. Double down, triple down, quadruple down. We know what's true. We know what, what we've been taught all these years, you know, by our grandparents and their grandparents, the things that are true and good. Let's not give up. We, we, we keep being who we are. If, if, if before we used to go to Myrtle Beach every weekend, well, let's go twice, twice a week. Let's go three times a week, whatever. I mean, don't stop living your life. Don't give up because that's exactly what the left needs us to do. And if, and if uh, voting for Trump, if that's the way to go, then let's do that, all right? And, uh, and, and, and look, I mean, I, I know people are frustrated, and, and, it, and there's reasons for that. There's legitimate reasons to feel uh, discouraged. But I, I'm a man of faith, and I'll tell you what. I'm beholden to the laws of God. And God's telling me to live by truth, not, not, not by these lies. So let's not play these political games of rigging and deceiving people. Let's speak truth. Keep speaking truth. People that go to church, keep going to church. Go to church uh, five, seven times a, a week if you have to. But don't stop being who you are. Become more of what you need to be. All right? I hope that lifted your spirit a little bit there, Ken and, and, and company. All right. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And I do agree with that. I mean, there's no doubt about mind. I mean, to me, ultimately, it, it, I mean, it is philosophical and ideological. It's uh, partisan. It's uh, it, it's an example of self-governance in action. But but ultimately, th- there's a line of demarcation of what's good and what's not. I mean, th- this is good. This honors God. This is bad. Does not honor honor God. I have no problem, Josh, with the American political left. The godless, as Bree says, but what about the spiritual left? I mean, I don't believe that every spiritual person is a conservative. I don't believe that every religious or, or God-fearing man or woman is a is a Republican. I can't believe that. I mean, that's unfair. I, I got to believe that there are some who believe in big government, who believe in government intervention, who believe in government policy that empowers the state. I, I you know, I can't question. I mean, I can't. I can't estimate that every one of those people are godless. I just can't. I mean, I do believe that the, the abortion encourager, I mean, that's godlessness. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I don't know how you do that, but, but have a complicated debate about conception and viability and, and when and where and how, I mean, I think you got to be careful assuming and, and estimating that, that the, the Democrats are void of any spirituality. I think that's unfair. I mean, I've got two people in my life that I'm thinking about that are big government liberals, but have a very, a very sincere spiritualness about them. I mean, they, they love God. They want to honor God. They just, for whatever reason, interpret the rules of government and political ideology in, in a way that allows them to believe it's okay for government to do things that I don't personally want to subject myself to. Does that make sense? Um, the, the other point that I, that I want to raise out of what he just said, and I and said it before and I'll say it again. Um, I think the church, I want to be careful generalizing, but I think the church air quotes here has failed America in, in creating warriors and equipping warriors. I think the church has done a lousy job of, of letting its membership or it's, um, it's, it's, it's heard. I mean, you got a shepherd. And you've got a herd. And I think, you know, the shepherd being the pastor and the elders and the deacons and the leadership and then all the other members of the church. I think the the modern American church, and I'm talking about my adult life, um, I, I think the church has inhibited the warrior spirit. 
I think at times God requires us to grab a rock and slay a giant. And we've not, we, we've, well, I mean, femininity. I mean, I don't want to go down the road of what, uh, you know, so, some of the things that we celebrate in, in society today. I mean, the church stands against that, but, but how aggressively. Um, I just think the church has failed to equip enough warriors to go out and do um, God's work. God's work is not always pretty. God's work is not always sterile. I mean, I think honoring God is always right. It's always righteous. And that's the side I want to be on every single moment of my life. Now, I'm man enough to know that I'm not. I mean, I, I'm, I'm frail. I'm flawed. I do things and say things that I regret. Um, sometimes spontaneously, instantaneously. Other times it takes a while for me to kind of revisit that decision of what I said or did and go, wow, I mean, I could have done, could have handled that a lot better. I mean, that didn't honor God much of the way I conducted myself in that particular situation. But I think the church has convinced the world that, you know, it's it's a big bubble-wrapped place. And I think the world at times, are you ready? I mean, I'm talking about the church, but are you ready? I think the church needs to equip some badasses to go out and not only advance the gospel, but take charge of certain things in politics and business and culture and, you know, in, in a lot of aspects of our daily lives. And I think the church is being far less aggressive than it should in allowing men, in particular, men to be the warrior society requires of them to be, to take on the fight, to have a little blood on your knuckles, a little dirt under your fingernails, and believing that that honors God as much as telling someone I love them for putting your arm around and hugging. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Barry in Chirag. Good morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Great call, uh, that last caller. Great call. Needed that. Hey, Ken, have you heard the uh, interview with uh, uh, James Carville, your favorite uh, impersonator? I have. Impersonator? I have. Uh, can, can we get that played? I mean, is it is it not it's, as dirty? I, got, I need the audience to hear what he says. Carville's got F-bomb happy here recently. Oh, i got to be careful he, with him. Okay. Um, I, I need the audience right. to hear what he really thinks. Because what they do, what the liberals do, they kill you. They, they get it into the minds of their voters. Okay, they say it over and over and over and over and over and over. So I need our audience to to hear what he's what he's talking about and what he really thinks of Christians. Um, it, that last car and this leads into that. So I mean, we need to hear that. Um, and 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 Trump is the vessel for this next the next phase of America First with the Eric Princes and the Cash Patels with the 3,000 workers waiting to go into the federal system to not let those 3,000 that are there sit in their jobs. The first time, that's what Trump did. He, he, he trusted the system. The system can't be trusted. So we have to get him in to get rid of those 3,000, as we call it, deep state, administrative state workers that hold everything up. When Congress is not making policies, that's a problem. When you let these agencies in the federal government make the policies, and, and that's where we're at now with the, with the coal and the energy, and, and, and Congress can do nothing about it, that's a problem. So if you go research Eric Prince and Cash Patel with their, with their plan, they're ready to go. They have 3,000 workers ready to come in and have been, have been taught. So the push is there. Um, I'm, I'm with Josh. Uh, we go with Trump, and then after that, we find the next. I, I like Cash Patel. I like Eric Prince. That I, the way they talk is the way I think. So, 
I'm with them, but I really need you to try to get that on because I, I want this audience to hear what, what James Carvel says about us. Okay, y'all have a great day. Thank you, Barry. 843-661-0937, back in a few. Josh, can we get some biblical interpretation? Do we have a call, Rev? Uh, no. Okay, no call. Can we get some biblical interpretation? Of course. Josh, so Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair of Francis Marion University, is here with us. Morning. Bill's got a buy. Right. It, was, it, was, it was a good week. We didn't right, lose. Good, good week for the Bills. So Rev and, and, and Dr. Bolt and I have been over here discussing about, you know, the climate. And you can't see this. Well, I mean, maybe you can. It's on Facebook. So John Kerry is at the um the, the, the climate summit, and he's sitting here you know, with his hands in somewhat of a um Aristotle-like. I mean, that, that would be the only way I could make mention. Yeah, you're making the example. By the way, we are on Facebook well, we Live, are, so, and, so and, people and can Kerry, tune in. Kerry's sitting like this. And, um, I mean, it's, it's humility personified. I mean, when I look at Kerry sitting like that at the climate, science, whatever, summit, um, I'm thinking of humility. But, but, but Josh, we've concluded that the – and we're talking about – Rev was talking about all these private jets mm-hmm. that were stuck on the, uh, the tarmac, they right, were fro- Rev? They were frozen to the tarmac on the way to the Global Warming Convention. The, the Global Warming Convention had multiple private jets um, stuck to the tarmac because of the cold weather. I mean, that makes sense, right? <laughs> sure. And John Kerry and Al Gore and Bill Gates. He's another, you know, I mean, if you don't trust a politician, surely you trust a software designer to tell you what the temperature of the planet surely, Earth will be 50, 100 years from now. But, uh, but here's what we've decided, and I want to get your, your take on this. So we believe, I mean, we had time to review scripture. So, and and we, we've seen Gulfstream G7 in the Old and New Testament. I mean, it's not, you know, you got you to gotta interpret the Bible certain ways, but it's Aramaic and anyway, um, and the old Latin. Um, so, so we've determined that the reason John Kerry and Al Gore and Bill Gates and Creflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland and all these others, the reason that they're flying around in G7s, I mean, it's got this uh, longer period of time to be refueled, I mean, it's a, um, I mean, it's it's a complicated and expensive aircraft. But we're convinced that God only makes those available to His ambassadors, and that Kerry and Gates and Gore and some of these televangelists are indeed making the world a better place. But they couldn't do it without God inventing, as He said He would in Scripture, the G seven, so they could <laughs> do God's work. Um, and 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 Josh deliver us peasants from our own misery. I believe that is an Ecclesiastes. Okay, yes. will, will, will you do something for me? Because I know you to be the, the the profound researcher. Could you get a um a, kind of a um a theological stamp of approval on some of this um some of these opinions we're making about Scripture? You know, when um and I, I think there's Ecclesiastes, and I think Paul may have written about it in, in Corinth. Um, yeah, sure, surely it must be in Revelation. Oh, it's in yeah, Revelation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, forget the flying monkeys on the Wizard of Oz. We're talking about G7s and, uh, and doing God's work. So the only reason, and Rev, you should be ashamed of yourself, that you're making fun of the 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 the, the, the um the the impediment that ICE made mm-hmm. to those G7s, those God blessed G7s, uh, being able to get up airborne they so they can continue to do um God's yep. work. So, so Josh, you're on that, right? Oh, yeah. You will have a theological stamp of approval from some seminary graduate from some, you know, theological institute, I, I would imagine, before the show's out. Can we count on that before the show's out? Most certainly. Okay. Okay. Good, good deal. Good deal. <laughs> did, did I misrepresent the um, the consensus of the group, yeah. Dr. Bolt? We're, we're all singing from the same hymnal. We are. There, there you go. And, um, and um, you know, just thank, thank, you know, I mean, John Kerry. Well, I mean, Crypto Dollar said he prayed for a G7, right? 
I mean, he made no bones about it. I mean, Creflo Dollar said he needed a bigger, faster airplane. It didn't have to be because he couldn't fly in steel tubes with demons. Peasants is what he, is what he really meant. Um, anyway, what, I want to go here with Dr. Bolt. Because very often, academia gets accused of being elitist and a little bit full of themselves. You no, would no be idea, a member no of academia, but you don't, you don't represent yourself in that mold or in that mindset. Try to remember my roots and, and where I came from. I'm very fortunate. I came from a, a working class family in a Rust Belt city. We, no, nothing was handed to us. You had to earn. It was, it was, it was a hard time of life. My, my parents made a lot of sacrifices so I could be here you know, and get to where I wanted to be. I'm very, very fortunate. Very lucky. I, I, I caught a lot of breaks along the way, but also kind of put myself in position uh, to catch those breaks as well. And again, I, I, Coming down to South Carolina as a, as an outsider, a Yankee, I'm not I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. I'm not going to assume that I have I know. And I'm very fortunate. My my wife is from here. They've they've kind of kept me grounded, uh, sort of introduced me to lots of people down here, and I, and I got to see. Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got to spend time in different parts of the country, and I realize well, what works in Buffalo maybe isn't the same as Knoxville, Tennessee, and here in the PD, uh, they're different beliefs. But in this country, there's still so much more that unites us than there is uh, than divides us. And again, I've never been that guy who sort of walked in into the room and had to say, uh, I'm the smartest guy in this room because oftentimes I wasn't. So, yeah. <laughs> what do you make of the elitist media and the elitist academia? By that, I mean, I mean, I've read and researched and, and, and tried to put together kind of a, um, a, I don't know, a, a reasoning for why the government operates as it does, media operates as it does. And, and at the core of that, Dr. Bolt, is a, uh, a large majority of graduates from these elite universities, and I'm talking right. about the Ivy League plus George it's Washington, maybe right. maybe Georgetown. I'm not asking if it offends you or not, <laughs> but does it present academia more monolithically than it really is? Oh, for sure, and I think right there's lots of you know levels, and we've said this before. There is a a hierarchy in academia. You know, it's, uh, some academics kind of look down on me. Well, I'm explain a, that if you don't mind. Well, I, I'm from an SEC school, I'm from the University of Tennessee, and so it's sort of the you've got your Big Ten. They kind of think their Ivy League are there, and sort of your your wannabe Ivy Leagues, your UVA, your your Chapel Hill. They're sort of like the next in the pecking order. You know, some of your, your Pac-10 schools, Berkeley, Stanford. Eh, you're you're an SEC. Most of the people think of Tennessee not with academics, but rather with football uh, and women's basketball. So right, even when I meet other people and say, well, you know, I Study Andrew Jackson and wrote a book on the tariff. Whoop de do, right? You know, no, no big deal. Where'd you get your degree from? So, no, I've I've had to kind of deal with that uh, my whole life as well. There's not there's not room at the table uh, for a lot of guys like us. But maybe it's better, you know. Maybe I don't want to be associated with a lot of those a lot of those individuals. And I applaud this, and I think Rev agrees with me for a professor. At a at a university in a you know in a in a in a, in a very good university. I mean, Francis Marion does a great job very of educating lucky, yeah. young people in this area. But but for him to agree, because I remember when we first had Kaufman on, and then he had a big change of schedule, could come on any longer. Bolt came on, and I and I'm thinking to myself, well, these guys will eventually stop coming because they'll realize <laughs> this is a little bit more um, uh, freewheeling than they're That's probably accustomed to. to but I do think people give you the benefit of the doubt if you humanize yourself. Right. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I really believe that. I think the more uh, the more academia, and, and I'll use this as, as, a, as an example. I mean, the professors from, let's pick on Harvard for a second. I mean, the, the professors from Harvard would never consider doing this 
because they 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 would rather sit around in faculty lounges yeah. and kind of agree with one another in this somewhat monolithic way. I think the the uh, the, the the members of academia who embrace the opportunities to address and engage different sorts of audience and and, and opinions do themselves and and the audience a great service. And um, I mean, I, I'll give you an example, Doctor Bolt. Do, uh, John Decker is a old hand uh, White House press pool. How long, Rev? I mean, he's covered About twenty something. Yeah, years. nearly thirty years yeah. of being in the White House press corps. He so calls right. into the show every Thursday morning, and some of our listeners get frustrated because he gives a perspective from being inside the Beltway. Yeah. I mean, you would expect that to be the case, and and you've done a great job of allowing us to take a peek into you know professorship and teaching kids and and how fair-minded oh. you try to do that and I, I i do enjoy this this is this is one of the highlights of my week and so when, when the alarm goes off a little early on tuesday when no big deal i'm very happy to come here and i'll tell you when i first started doing it man i was nervous as you know what <laughs> you know the monday nights and i'd be kind of like studying I, what's what's ken gonna ask me what are we gonna talk about <laughs> ken didn't know monday night so don't, <laughs> you, don't you dare worry it's hard to study when the host doesn't know what we're going to talk and about I, I had all these talking and we talk about just stuff that i had no idea but now it's like ah, it's, it's it's no big deal and so i do i do enjoy and it, it, it's, it's kind of nice if I meet people out there. It's like, you're that guy on the radio. Yeah. It makes me feel like a big deal. I know he's the unit. one of my qu- wife. The next question he doesn't ask us is, or yet tell us, the next question is, why do you keep doing that? I mean, why, why, why do you keep going on with those nuts? Anyway, somebody on the phone? Let's go there. Uh, yeah, we have Mike in Darlington. Mike, you are on with Dr. Bolt. Oh, uh, uh, Dr. Bolt. Morning, sir. I, uh, I appreciate you having uh, some sort of uh, uh, ex- life experiences, not all in academia. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I think that that's missing in a lot of professors in our colleges. Uh, one of the most interesting professors I ever had, uh, he taught uh, 20th century European history, and uh, someone uh, in the class asked him, uh, "Was he a veteran, uh, a veteran of World War II?" He said, "Yes, but I was in Mussolini's army," <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> He said, the first time I saw America was as a prisoner of war. <laughs> I'd been captured in uh, in North Africa. And he said, uh, I, thought, I, I observed this place uh, for uh, several years as a prisoner of war, and then they sent me back to Italy. Well, I spent, he, he said, I spent the next six years trying to get back to this country. <laughs> and he uh, he he was uh, really really a character, but uh, I w- I would like for you to comment on how uh, the religious, the Baptist, the Methodist, and the Episcopalians uh, split up and uh, took part in the in the uh, Revolutionary War. If you could comment on that, thank you, Mike. Appreciate yeah. that. You know, I I don't know much about the the religious denominations before the revolution. I can talk a little bit about it, certainly in the build-up to the Civil War, and so sadly, most of the denominations uh, sadly fractured and crumbled over the issue, uh, the issue of slavery. And so, this was sort of like the, the glue that held the country together. Once your denominations are breaking into a southern and a northern wing, uh, it certainly wasn't a good sign for the country. Only the Episcopalians and the Catholics uh, didn't buckle under the strain. Of slavery, my understanding, at least in the revolution, is that by and large, I'm certainly there were there were loyalists and Tories, probably in every camp. But again, everybody, most of the uh, religious-minded individuals were singing from the same hymnal 
uh, in the buildup and then during the revolution itself. But yeah, but, that's good, a good point to kind of look toward. But religion was, a, was a, a part of it. I mean, there was a lot of debate about religion in the early days of America. And, and w- one of the main causes, nobody talks about it a lot, but there was the thought, this thought that the British were going to send over an Anglican bishop to the colonies, and that would essentially mean the end of religious freedom here in the United States in each of the colonies. It was probably a boogeyman, uh, but again, it was something that kind of got the people kind of roused up. And a lot of those people who weren't maybe who were maybe on the fence and say, I don't care what's going on in Boston, nah, no big deal. This was a way to kind of get more people closer and closer to supporting uh, this burgeoning revolutionary movement. Your interpretation of the separation of church and state. Again, we it's very, very important. We're all religious-minded individuals, and yet we kind of gravitate towards Thomas Jefferson and the guy who said, no, 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 there's got to be a firm foundation, a firm separation. And he may have been between, an atheist. At, at best, right? You know, maybe, <laughs> a, maybe an agnostic, but— uh, but no, again, it is ironic, and it is something—it is a key part of, of what's in our DNA. And most of our founding fathers, they weren't that far removed from the religious wars over in Europe, where you never knew which way the, the religious winds were blowing. All of a sudden, you wake up, and the faith that you've been practicing for many years is now decreed, uh, and you're, you're a heretic. You know, you got to convert or flee. And so, again, most of the colonies— uh, several of them, I should have said, there was no state-sponsored. You weren't taxed to support it. And then, of course, once we get to the Constitution itself, it's well, it's one of the un- the most unique things about the United States of America. So, why did Jefferson, who didn't consider himself a religious man, have so many opinions about religion? Yeah, I, I think it's it's in the ether. Jefferson was a an enlightened individual. Lots of people were were talking about it. Uh, Jefferson always said if there was a Unitarian church in his area of Charlottesville, that's what he would have gone to. But again, at the same time, this is a guy who took a hatchet, a machete to the Bible. Um, and again, if you want a really, really short Sunday school class, read the Jefferson Bible. Uh, there's not much to it. You're going to be out there uh, in just in just a few minutes. Anything, any of the miracles of Christ, anything supernatural, uh, Jefferson gutted and said, no, no, this this isn't there. I don't yeah. believe in that. He replaced all that supernatural with G7s. Um, <laughs> there you go. So Gordon, nice. I mean, he saw Gordon Carey coming <laughs> and knew that they would need a way around to, oh, yeah. to travel around the world, lecturing mm-hmm. us peasants about how much oil and fossil fuels we burn. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University is with us. All right. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joel in Mullins. Good morning. You are on with Dr. Bolt. Thank you, sir. Dr. Bolt, um, in my reading, I've, I've wondered, I have two questions for you. Sure. Were the founding fathers um, more theist than actually Anglican or Puritan? I, I, the word I use is, is deist. They, many of them, again, believed that there was an, an almighty power, but again, he was a, an, an absentee landlord, uh, like a watchmaker. He set the world in motion and didn't involve himself directly in the affairs of the people. So the, you, you didn't get down on your knee and really and pray to this individual because he wasn't going to get involved. Uh, again, he was just, he, he set the world in motion and then he st- st- took a step back. Now, they would probably say that he gave man the gift of reason uh, and science to kind of solve solve their problems. But again, that's at least the guys, the main guys at Philadelphia or were deists. Now, when you peel away and you get sort of to the next level at all the people at the ratifying conventions, then you're probably going to find a, a greater proportion of more Christians, evangelicals, if you will. But the guys at the top, it was kind of they all, it was almost like a, a ticket or something, how you, you got into this, the club. There's no s- secret handshake. You, you kind of had to be a deist, and if you were 
again, an evangelical or a devout Christian, it probably would have raised some eyebrows at that time. So again, most of those guys, this is what they, they consider themselves. All right, may I ask you another question? Sure thing. Yes, sir. I have wondered, uh, I sort of believe that the notion of separation of church and state as we practice it today is a far cry from what <laughs> the fathers had in mind when they said it. Um, it just doesn't seem to me that the um, the um, promotion of religion or the foundation of a national church as in England was really on the mind of these All guys. Right. Uh, no, I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, you're on to you're on to something there. They, they, again, they just they didn't think that it it should be so public or that member elected officials, government officials, shouldn't be wearing their religion on their sleeve. It probably, if anything, it was more of a, a private affair, and that it shouldn't be interjected uh, into the public discourse, if you will. So, thank you for the call. So, who was the first founder, founding father, early American politician that wore his faith on his sleeve? That's probably Andrew Jackson. Uh, Jackson is a, a Presbyterian at this time. And again, the six guys, the presidents before him, most members of Congress, again, this was something that if they did it, they, they weren't bragging, but they weren't taking victory laps. Uh, and nowadays, a politician, you get, Sunday morning, you got to come out of a church, you got to have the Bible in your arm, you got to play the game. If they were doing it, again, they weren't doing it for, for public consumption. They weren't writing about it. They weren't, you know, uh, no, some of them did at least claim that they would read the Bible every morning. Uh, who knows? You maybe take that with a grain of salt. But Jackson is probably the first uh, evangel. And then after him, you got you got a long ways to go. Jackson's kind of a kind of like Trump in that regard, an anomaly. So, so intellectually, Jefferson probably. I mean, once again, the supernatural, the non-scientific. I mean, that would be the world of intellectuals. Um, yeah. Were there non-intellectuals? at the front of design of the Constitution. In other words, we talk about the deist right. and some of the intellectuals. And you and I would agree the majority of prominent founders were perceived to be intellectuals. Uh, the, w these were the best of the best. The, okay, was there a non-intellectual? No, no, these were all—they were highly educated by the standards of their time. They were borderline they aristocratic. Were very well, it, no, it is—dare it, we say it, it's the cream of the crop. It, it wasn't representative. You know, the, the peasants aren't there. The guys— you know, kind of toiling with their hands, didn't have any representation in Philadelphia and probably in many of the ratifying conventions as well. But I think in retrospect, it worked out okay for us. They bequeathed to us a very, an incredible document. But one of the concerns Jefferson had of Jackson was he was not as intellectual oh, as sure. maybe Jefferson would have perceived his heir apparent to be. Jackson served in the Senate with Jefferson was vice president and Jefferson, remember, the guy couldn't say a single sentence without stammering and getting, getting confused. And Jackson was a very passionate individual, would sometimes speak what was on his mind, speak rather plainly and bluntly. And whereas Jefferson hated to speak, and whatever he did, it was all carefully written out very, very well. Or And that's how a lot of the other guys did. It, it's like a lawyerly argument. It's a brief, right? You're eventually going to build a, to a big point. And then Jackson was just kind of cursing irrationally, just kind of stuttering jumping around from point to point. Jefferson was governed by his passions, whereas most of the other guys would sort of consume them. And this was just a more refined form of debate. Is there another call? Let's go there. Sure. Jim and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning. You're on with Dr. Bolt. Uh, good morning, Dr. Bolt. Good morning, sir. Um, so when Eisenhower uh, created the United Nations, I think it's really morphed into something that everybody's <laughs> kind of fearful of now. Um, 
and you guys were mentioning the G7 crowd, so I wanted to throw this one out there. They're, they're actually talking about something called the Pandemic Treaty, and it has an underpinning that is climate-related. So now they've tied COVID to climate change. And the Prime Minister, Prime Minister of Slovakia just said he wouldn't sign the Pandemic Treaty because it basically gave up all sovereignty. <laughs> In that um, Pandemic Treaty is something called One Health, and it actually states that because climate change, because heating of the planet, uh, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, ticks come out, because weather patterns, avian flu could happen. So they're actually tying climate change with vaccine passport and all of this simultaneously. What would you say the founding fathers would say about <laughs> A United Nations that is literally mandating to the world to give up its sovereignty. <laughs> uh, they'd probably be very, very opposed. And then the, the founding fathers, if we had to use a word, uh, were isolationists. They didn't want to get involved in the other affairs of the world. And then Washington's farewell address, this had been a bedrock of American foreign policy. And it's not until after World War II, 1949, when the United States joins NATO, uh, when we kind of really fundamentally alter and reverse this policy. And prior to that, our policy had been, well, it doesn't matter what goes on. If they over there in Europe or Asia want to kill each other and let God sort it out, that's fine, fine by us. And again, right now you kind of see, you extrapolate the curve, and you see where we are now in this this globalist, this multinational approach where you have these treaties and you, the devil is in the details. And some of these treaties that we might be signatories to uh, could represent a severe threat to to our sovereignty moving forward. So it is something right to be to be worried. And again, this is just a, a recent phenomenon in our history the past the past seventy years. Uh but we've opened Pandora's box and we can't we can't we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Appreciate the call. But aren't yeah, we stuff. but but it isn't this part of getting back I mean I dare I say getting back to our roots. But I mean I've read yeah. not as much as you and I don't understand it as well as you but 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 you're right. I mean the majority of our founding fathers and the political influences were at least non-interventionist. Right. I mean, probably to your point, more isolationist than even non-interventionist. Probably the best word. Yeah. But isn't the current mindset of the "Make America right. Great Again" movement or "America First" similar to what our founders no, had I, intended? And and maybe not so much maybe to the degree, but at least protecting American workers, American business. But again, as the name implies, taking care of the people of the United States instead of like funneling billions and billions of dollars overseas. We've got so many problems at home, crumbling infrastructure, unemployment, shutting down coal mines. Focus on those individuals first. And then if there's extra, all right, then maybe you can allocate some of it overseas. But I think you're right. It's, there is a very, very similar line to, to Trump and the America First movement and sort of harkening back to the 1790s. And it's pretty obvious there ain't a lot extra. If there were, yes, we wouldn't yeah. be $33 trillion. Be, be a good problem debt. to have, yeah. a surplus. Yeah. Take a break. Back in a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. It would be more economically. No, it'd be, it'd be it'd be friendlier to the climate if Gore and Gates and Kerry flew around on flying monkeys for the Wizard of Oz than the um, the CO two emitting G sevens right. that they fly around in. But they're doing God's work, and you can't do God's work on a flying monkey. Well, and I think one time John Kerry was asked, you know, how can you fly around in these private jets? So, you know, you're climate guy or whatever aren't you bad for the environment when you do that and his answer was people like me 
me, me, me. <laughs> I I need to travel like this to do the work I do. You just don't worry about that. Yeah, he made he made money the old fashioned way, didn't he, Rev? Yeah, he did. He married, married a woman it. who had money. You know how she got rich? She married a dude with money. <laughs> and then he died. She gets yeah. the money. Now Carrie's anyway, that's the story. <laughs> People for like me. Yeah. What did he refer to himself as an extraterrestrial? Yeah. In uh, in Davos. I mean he did literally. He, I mean, did. he said it's amazing that moments like this in our planet's existence require it's almost an extraterrestrial extraterrestrial moment. And my wife said I could say that. <laughs> and she still let me fly on her jet. Uh, let's go to the phone. Here is Sam in Darlington. Hey Sam, you're on with the popular Dr. Bolt today. Good morning. Hi. Thank you. Well, I have a question for Dr. Bolt. I, I read you. something one time and I'd like to run it by him. And uh what I read was that in the 1750s there was the the Seven Years' War, uh, war of empire between the French and the British, and uh, and uh, after that was over, both of them were in bad shape financially. Yes, oh yes. And so the the British decided to solve their problem by taxing the colonies, and that didn't work out too well <laughs> for them. And then the French decided to solve it by printing up paper money <laughs> and that really didn't work out too well for them never does in is, history yeah is that that the pretty good no you, you know you're absolutely right and the, the the catalyst for our revolution is of course the seven years of the the french and indian war uh britain essentially said to each of the 13 colonies here's a blank check uh do whatever you got to do to pay for troops to raise troops to pay for supplies and again, the British simply outspent the French, and the French kind of realized that we can't go round for round with the British. And so the British debt had skyrocketed during the, the Seven Years' War. They had already been taxing uh, the people at home. And so now once the dust settles, the British say, well, if we hadn't spent all this money on you guys, you'd be speaking French. Uh, you wouldn't have religious freedom. You'd all be Catholics. So we're going to pass the hat, and we're going to tax you. And most of the colonists said, that's fine. We're more than willing to pay our taxes we're happy to be a part of the British Empire. The one caveat is we want a form of representation. We want to say in this taxation policy, and there's the rub. The British said, no, uh, you're virtually represented. Every member of parliament represents everybody in the British Empire. And the colonists called BS on that and said, no, we want individuals of our own from the colonies. And all the British had to do was just give one colony, one representative. They would have been just a small, small minority and this would have appeased the colonists, and who knows, we'd still be members of the Anglican Church or wouldn't have our independence to this day. But the British were stubborn, and, of course, you connect the dots. This is what triggers the revolution. Interesting, and a good take. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate Thanks, the call. Let's go to the, another call. Yep, let's go there. Baron in Hartsville, you are on with Dr. Bolt. Hey, good morning, Dr. Bolt. Good morning, sir. You're actually one of my more enjoyable segments. <laughs> no offense, but They're all enjoyable, but, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, man. <laughs> I want to push back on you a little bit. Go for it. Because I think the concept that the majority of the founding fathers were deist is a is a bit of a product of 20th century revisionist historiography. You know, if you read through a lot of the primary sources that are the and and it's almost the universal way it's taught in primary school yeah. even and now especially in <laughs> secondary school and on into um through graduate. But if you read through the primary sources, the discourses between them, when they're debating the concepts 
especially prior to the convention or to the declaration originally, and then in the arguments for the convention, they're extremely biblically versed, right? And they're, and they're rooted in Christian doctrine. I would argue that one of the points that we miss in modern history is that we've confl- we over-conflate modern terms like evangelical or concepts that are born out of, call it whatever you want, the 20th century born-again movement. I like to call it the Third Great Awakening, but um, and push them back into the First and Second Great Awakening. And I think there's no argument that later in life Jefferson definitely has deistic tendencies. I worry that we overquote yeah. Bible chopping as <laughs> yeah. as, as his attempt to give it too the much Bible. right, too much precedence. Yeah, maybe less. Ac- it, it was. It's a good story, though. Probably more of an academic precedent, but it is right. Yeah. But I think that you know, if we were to take the take the verbiage that we use now out of it, right, with evangelical, born again, that kind of thing, and view the first and second Great Awakenings and the writings. I mean, you can go down the whole of the explicitly religious ones, like Thomas Paine. Oh, not Thomas yeah. Paine. He's the other way. Uh, no, Patrick no, he's Henry, the one of the doubting right. Thomases, right? Yeah, yeah, he's the other way. And then, you know, look at later in life, the the language of the time changes with the coming of the French Revolution, right? <laughs> with the, with the academic language amongst them changes to be explicitly more secular. But I think it might be a function of the time and of the language, not necessarily as much credence as we, uh, the historical disciplines, have given to their over-deism yeah. or, a la- or a loss of Christianity. No, I, I think it's a point well taken. Uh, the problem is that uh, most of the academics, the individuals who study this, are kind of in the atheist camp, if you will, and maybe don't want to uh, change the narrative, if you will. This is something that uh, doesn't fit their worldview. And sort of an outside, a sort of a somebody who isn't a member of the academy were to publish that and suggest that no, you've had it wrong. That in fact these guys, many of them weren't deists. Uh, they probably laughed, and of course would be ridiculed for that. So no, I I, I think it is a, a point to maybe a, it's a, a new it's a a fresh advice. I mean, it's a fair at, debate. Yes. I mean, and then you know, while, while Barry's expressing himself, I'm thinking about wow, okay, this is conservative talk radio. You know, and, and I, I mean, I love this at 8:49 on a Tuesday morning in Florence, South Carolina. <laughs> But it convinces me more that talk radio has much more opportunity than it gives itself credit sure. for right. in having some of these very serious debates and disagreements. Um, the point I'll make is very surfacy, if you will. I've learned in my life that it's hard to know exactly what someone's spirituality means to them or not. Sure. I mean, you, you can read what they write. You can listen to what they say. You can... Uh, you, you, you can argue about points of, uh, of politics, but in all honesty, I've always felt the Christian faith, which is what I fall in the camp of, is very personal. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and it has to be personal. And I can't. I mean, I can't. I can't decide for you what to believe about you know religion yeah. or spirituality. You can't decide for me there. And I think we got to be very careful. And I think Baron makes points, and I think Bolt makes points, and I think academia makes a lot of legitimate points about speculating right. on how much spirituality or not was incorporated into the founding of a of a nation. Because we honestly and truly, none of us really know. Sure, I mean, sure. I mean, everything we're debating is something we are at yeah. some points highly speculative, and at others less speculative. Yeah. And I, as, as a Southern Baptist who, who came to this faith, came to this region 
uh, about a decade ago. I've been in a lot of Sunday school classes, and you know, man, they know the Scripture backwards and frontwards and backwards. I'll never be at a level of them. And then maybe some of these these the the guys and girls, men and women who don't say much, but you get them one on one. Oh yes, this this yes, they've they've been paying attention. They can quote it. Uh, they know much more than some of the other ones over there. And so you're right. I, it is in many ways a personal matter. Some people wear it on their sleeves. Other are more discreet and more private about it. But we don't have Jefferson sitting here, <laughs> so we're required. We're forced to have we these fundamental debates about exactly why he did what he did to right. the Holy yeah. Bible when he ripped it to shreds. And uh, it's, it, it, we, again, as Barry said, we do overplay it, but, man, that's pretty audacious, well, cutting up the Bible. Yeah, it's, it's good for talk radio. And Absolutely. I don't, care, I don't care about the truth. I'm interested in what's good for talk radio. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Bolt. Hey, have a good week, guys. Thank Dr. You very Will much. Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937, hour number four on a Tuesday morning. Programming note, real quick here. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I got to pay some bills first. You ready? I got to meet my obligations and responsibilities. Um, we talk about the complications of the world. Um, I don't know what the founders thought of health insurance. I know what I think about. It's too damn expensive, far too expensive for health insurance. Um, so if you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, you owe it to yourself, and I've said this a hundred times, and some of you have taken us up on this. You owe it to yourself, and I don't want to try to explain every explicit detail. Christian Levis can do it much better than I, but if you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, if you feel like you're paying too much for health insurance, you need to call 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970, or go to Real Choice Healthcare.com. We had someone call in earlier and say the app on our website was not working. Uh, you say it is. Yeah, um, I haven't heard anything. Well, I mean, Josh told us earlier somebody tried to make a donation and couldn't make oh, a donation. Oh, about the Listen app. No, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, not not right. the, the, the Listen app. You're talking about the season of giving. I'm talking about the season of yeah. giving and, and uh, in tribute to Mr. Frank Avant that Rev and I uh, try to promote every year. And I want to ask our listeners, um, if the pace doesn't pick up, I'll get more aggressive. And I'll start divulging things about you that I know um, to basically blackmail you to make a, a contribution nice. to a, um, <laughs> no, we, we've identified six anonymous families that need help and they don't believe they're going to have a Christmas. It excites me. I walked to the printer this morning and saw some bicycles and some other goodies and, and toys out back. Um, I'm on the radio because uh, Dave Baker, um, Harold Miller and Frank Avant and Mr. Avant passed away. One of the most generous and giving people I've ever known, and we came up with the idea to try and pay respect to his name and legacy, partnered with Pepsi of Florence, and um, and Swap Payment Solutions, Anderson Brothers Bank, Walk Up Electrical, Hubs Farmland, and Trinity Auto Glass are helping as well. I'll defer to Rev on him uh, enlightening our listeners how they can indeed make a contribution. I know we had, we'd heard that one report that someone had trouble finding the place to donate and I haven't heard, hadn't heard any other reports. So if you go to live953.com, the way the way it's set up is we have a slider. It's basically front and center on the page. Slider is kind of a small burger. Well, <laughs> now, different kind of slider. This My, is bad. A, My a, bad. A sliding banner, and, and there's several of them. So I guess maybe what you may see is you may see a different slider come up when you go to the page. But wait a second, it'll flip over. And when you see the season of giving, 
uh, slider banner, then you click on that and it will take you to the Season of Giving page. It explains what we're doing. There's a link there where you can actually see the items that we are going shopping for for these families uh, that they've requested uh, through, like you said, through the agencies that uh, have helped us line them up. And there's the big green donate button. When you click on the donate button, that'll take you to the page where you can make your monetary donation. Okay, this next guest, his life became entangled with mine, uh, I don't know, uh, 15 years ago, somewhere thereabout. Um, I had this idea. My father had started a convenience store and passed away and left it just there. I mean, my dad would do that. Um, He's in the middle of a project, but somebody asked him to go dove hunting. So he just drops what he's doing and does once for two or three years. Then he comes back and, and the process passed away. And, and there was this, um, this piece of property and a half built building sitting on the piece of property. My brother and I discussed it. My brother was smarter than I, I said, I don't think do with it. I mean, if you want to do it, have at it. So I did. And I reached out to uh, chase Howard at Howard, uh, gas or how chase oil, oil chase company. oil company. Yep. I'm sorry. Yep. Chase oil company. And, um, and we kind of, um, collaborated and those guys really walked me through the process of convenience stores and what to be careful about. I didn't listen. What to be careful about what to do, what, what not to do. And, um, and I asked or chase and I have uh, not, not, not every day, but periodically kept in touch with one another, but it was a lot of fun to do that project. I learned a lot in the process of doing that. And I'm always excited when our community opens a new business, especially when it's a locally owned business. I'm not opposed to big boxes. And I mean that sincerely, but it excites me when I see a local homegrown business expanding and, um, and I, you know, I, I'm, you know, me, Rev, busy head syndrome. Mm-hmm. I'm like, damn, another car wash. I mean, <laughs> you know, I got, I got to get into this. I mean, I need a car wash. I got to start a, a build me a car wash somewhere, somehow. But these guys have been on the show before with the Scrubbies brand. Um, and it was the old, you know, I guess somewhat automated chase. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. I, I don't I'm wanna, doing great. Yeah. Thanks guys. Both but, of you for having me. But, but in all honesty, I want to get to several things with you if you'll allow, sure. Sure. but, but, um, I mean, man, car washes have really changed <laughs> in the last 10 or 12 years. It really has guys. I mean, we're, uh, what, what y'all are experiencing and a lot of your listeners are probably seeing is this, uh, tremendous growth in the car wash industry technology is what Charles and I, my brother Charles and I say, technology is caught up to the car wash world. So, you know, 25 years ago when my brother and I had this idea of, of starting this little small car wash company that was basically uh, born in the idea that we need a little income, my father wouldn't pay us any money at the oil company. So I can we, relate to that. Yeah, so we came up with this this idea with the car wash, and the Lord blessed us, and it's technology got here, and the thing has exploded. But we're actually... Today, I think washing a car better than 95% of the people in this country could do it themselves. And, and make it very convenient for the consumer. Much more convenient, much faster, and more efficient. Energy efficient, water efficient, all of those things. So that's where I say it's technology's caught up to the industry. And you're proud. I mean, you got to be proud to do it in your hometown. Oh, I mean, man. you're from here. Lived no. here all your entire life. Um, and you're building one. I want to get this straight. So you go down Hoffmeyer. You turn right to go to Windsor Forest. You turn left to go to Walmart. On Beltline. And it's kind of on the corner there. It's on the corner next door to the our good friend at the pharmacy. Um, we think that's, well, we know that's probably the best piece of real estate in Florence. And that's we want eyeballs to see us. And so that's why we're there. Okay. The, one of the concerns that I would have had, because you know me, I'm the, the perfect business guy, yeah. is egress and ingress. <laughs> yes. But you guys actually addressed that in a very creative way. We did. 
So we worked with uh, my dear, dear friend, uh, Mr. Jerry Hewitt. Who owned the land. Who owned the land. And uh, he and I uh, developed a fast friendship here, I guess, almost two years ago. And with Mr. Hewitt's help, we were able to come up with a kind of a secondary support road that comes off a Beltline and kind of cuts that corner. And it goes all the way down toward, you know, five points, that direction, and lets you allows you to kind of return to Florence. At the same time, we did a deal with the city of Florence. And so we've got this road done, and then the city of Florence is now owns it. We gave it to them as part of the community. And so it's part of the city's uh, infrastructure plan, and it, I think it's going to work well for everybody. And I think that's the important part of this. You've got county government, city government, a local business, a local mm-hmm. landowner collaborating and trying to figure out a way to bring about economic development. It wasn't just putting a building or putting a structure on a, on a street corner. And, and I, you know me, I mean, I, I'm riding, I live near there and I ride by and I'm going like, okay, I see what they're doing now that they're going egress here and, and you know, and, and, and have exits there. And I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a tribute to economic development to have that many people committed to making that project work. And here you are this morning, grand opening. I think yesterday was free day, right? Well, no, yes, today's free day, too. Oh, uh, okay. We're actually oh. going to be giving it away free uh, all week at a minimum. We, we we've, have discovered that the best way to get you guys to try us is just to give it away free. Uh, it, it, from a marketing standpoint and spending dollars, there's nothing more powerful than free, and so that's what we're doing. And we, we're going to get, until further notice, it's going to be free. Now, what we ask your listeners and everybody that comes by, if they will support us by checking us out on Facebook and, and Instagram uh, and like and sharing our, our message, that helps us continue the free. So the more likes and shares we get, the longer it's going to be free. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a perfect example of why I know this works. My wife and I ate out last night. Well, it's dark. It's not last night. It's dark early now, and it feels like the night. I mean, it's really 545. <laughs> yesterday and it, afternoon. Yeah, yesterday yeah. afternoon when it's pitch dark. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we're driving. I'm pulling into my neighborhood, talking to my youngest son on the phone. My wife beeps in. She's right behind me. She beeps in. And I said, Mason, I got to hang up. Mama's getting ready to tell me she's turning around to go back and wash her car because she said, well, it's free today. So I hang up with my son. And sure enough, my wife says, hey. I'm going to turn around real quick and, and go get me. But she said that everybody there was so helpful. Yeah. And so, and, and so explained about, hey, it's free today. It'll be free for another couple of days. But we want you to be a, a consistent consumer and customer. So, so walk me through. I mean, if somebody wants to be a member of the Scrubbies Club, so to speak, Absolutely. how do they do that? Absolutely. So <clears throat> your wife's spot on in her observations, and I hear this all the time. I mean, my brother Charles and I uh, have have desperately tried to create something a little bit different, a little bit better, a little bit higher quality. So if you'll notice this location when you're by there, we're bigger. We got cleaner, nicer people. and Fancy, flashing signs and everything, man. Because Florence deserves it. And we, we think that uh, we, we live here and we there, there's some other washes in this town that we think are fine and great and there's room for everybody, but we just wanted something a little bit better. We call ourselves the Chick-fil-A of the car wash industry okay. for a reason, and I challenge everyone in Florence to come by there and see it themselves. We appreciate the business there do, people in Florence are willing to do, and we understand cost and things, and we just want to offer a better quality uh, location. So what we're doing with this free promotion is we are also promoting our car wash club. And that is the scrub club, which everybody's familiar with where you pay one flat fee per month and you get to wash your car unlimited. 
Well, the easiest way for me to get you to do that is to give you a deal. And so what we're doing is uh, for the next three months, we're selling that scrub club for nine ninety nine a month, our top $42 a month club for nine ninety nine. So you're saving whatever that is, $25, bucks. Um, I believe in it so much, I'm willing to discount it that much to get you to try it. And you get to try it for three months. And if you don't like it, you can downgrade or you can uh, bail if you want to. It doesn't make any difference to me, but I don't know how you can't not try something unlimited on a monthly basis for nine ninety nine. And so that's what we're really pushing because, Ken, the, the value of this wash is when you're in my club, then you've got the freedom to not only wash there, but I have locations, in, or Charles and I have locations in Hartsville, Bennettsville, Socastee, Merle's Inlet, Georgetown, Lumberton. Uh, we've got sites opening it, another one in Lumberton, another one in Dillon. Uh, those are under construction right now. Manning is one we're going to start first quarter next year. We've got plans in Lake City. We've got Union Spartanburg. Point being, that when you get in our club, you've got access to all of these locations. So, the, for, so for the travelers in the, in the PD area, you know, this is a tremendous value, in my opinion, going forward where you can utilize your membership in multiple locations. And it's free vacuum. I mean, the, yeah. the, the word free is always a big deal. That's right. I'm telling you, the, 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 the little things still matter. That's I mean, right. They, they really and truly do. So when you go through the car wash and you want to vacuum the car out, there's an additional fee that goes along with that. Correct. The, the vacuums are free. And if you'll notice in Florence, we've made these vacuums big and wide. It's not tight. It's very easy. It's like my F-250 pickup truck. I can turn in and out of these vacuum areas. We have free chemicals. We have free towels. We have air blowers to blow the dirt grime out of the cracks of your seats. All of this is part of your wash experience with us. Um, and the vacuums are, uh, you're able to use them whether you buy an individual wash or whether you buy a club wash, you're able to have access to those things. It's just that the, the importance of the club is so great in that every time you wash your per wash price gets down. And so, you know, our individual wash, our top wash is $32. Well, in the club, we sell that for a flat 42 a month. So you, you wash two times and you, you've cut that price in half in a month. And a lot of people, you know, have an opportunity to get in there a couple of times a, a month. It, it makes a lot of sense in value. No, no question about it. So the car wash, because I'm, I'm not going to let you leave here because I, no I want you to stick around if you don't mind. You guys are in the convenience store business. Sure. We've had a lot of debates recently about EVs and the infrastructure necessary and adaptability and the government's going too far too fast. You mind hanging around? Nope. And I'm let's walk to. through some of that. So once again... Free car washes today and, and probably tomorrow and maybe the rest of the, the rest week. Of the week. And, and, and it's at the – give me the exact address again. It's uh, 2949, I think, East uh, Hoffmeyer Road. It's, it's at, at the, the corner, corner of, of Bel- Hoffmeyer and Beltline. And it's um, – I mean, it's very elaborate. Yeah, you and can't it, miss it. You know, I mean, it, and it is – um, I mean, it's a good neighbor. I'll just say that. And I was always concerned about water going that corner. And, uh, and I've watched it from start to finish. And, yeah. I mean, I see the, the road, and I'm going like, okay, there – I see what 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 he done with. I mean, it, anyway, my mind just tends to work that way. Chase Howard is going to hang around with us. I want to try to get a insider's perspective on EVs, charging stations, and the government basically creating competition for people who are in the gas business. Take a break. Back in a few. See, in the world of give and take, when you give someone a chance to um, promote their business. <laughs> 
you got to take a little something in return, right, Rev? Yes. So, so we're going to take a little bit from Charles Howard. Okay. I mean, excuse me, from from Chase Howard here, or just uh, Charles and Chase always. Yep. It's a little like Ken and Sammy. Yeah. You know, um, Jimmy Laverne. I mean, everybody's got these brothers. Or anyway, um, so we've talked a lot, Chase, about the government, mm -hmm. and they're almost demanding a transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. You've helped me get in the convenience store business. Your family has always been in that business. What makes you nervous about the government driving the transition instead of the market taking care of it? That's it exactly. Some, someone telling me uh, what, how we need to do things when we know better probably than they do. Um, my family's been in the, that business since 1946. My uh, grandfather, Maitland Chase, came in. A local diner back in, in the early 40s and met an American gas representative from up north that was down here. And he had, he told my grandfather that uh, what he was doing down here was trying to get people to sign up to sell a little bit of gasoline. They thought gasoline was going to get popular. And so that was kind of how our family got into it originally. But whenever the government starts talking to us and directing us on how to conduct our business, that is concerning. For sure. Uh, we don't, we're seeing the elect, electric car vehicle discussions going on. We're, we're, uh, traveling and hearing seminars and talking about it, but we're not seeing it because I don't know how that can be supported. But, but Charles, we, we debated yesterday with one of our good liberal listeners, mm -hmm. a battery car does not generate its own power. That battery stores power. That Correct. power's got to come from somewhere. Correct. Um, I mean, if you know anything about internal combustion engines, there's a spark plug and a piston and a cylinder wall and a cylinder chamber. There's an explosion, generates power, drives a drivetrain, drives a drive shaft, turns an axle. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it self-generates sure. itself. The, the EVs require an electrical grid equipped for, in other words, if you guys at a convenience store were to take out half of your gas pumps and put EV charging stations, you, you got to depend on somebody to give you the power you need to, to equip your your uh, your your store correct and we and we're also dependent on speed I mean our customers are in and out in less than 10 minutes and there's not a system out there electric wise at the moment that's going to accommodate that so what are the customers going to do they're gonna if 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 I don't have the the number of gas pumps needed to supply uh, the, the current force they're going to go somewhere else that's the kind of business that when when they start monkeying with it like that it makes you very concerned we don't want to see that type of, uh, I mean, they've thought it out, but I, at the same time, I'm not sure they've thought it completely out. Or are you concerned at all? Do, do, do you guys as an industry have lobbyists that, that are making sure, because a lot of times in government, it's not what you do, it's what you don't have done right. to you. So, but is that alarming to you? It's alarming, and, and, and so we've been affiliated with major oil companies since the 1940s, um, and uh, our father taught us a, a valuable lesson back then that we've, we've always aligned ourselves with these big oil groups. Uh, you know, I, I think three or four of the highest revenue-producing companies in the world are big oil, and so we've, we've always kind of followed their lead, and, and but they're playing the political game too because the government's holding them hostage for money and whatever other avenues they need, so... It's kind of a cat and mouse game. Do you believe, I mean, you would be more familiar, and your brother, I think, is kind of the expert in this. I mean, you do your thing, and he does his thing, and y'all right. y'all complement one another. But but do, do you worry that 
the traditional convenience store could eventually become, I don't want to say obsolete, but far less valuable. In other words, if I've invested my entire life in truck body manufacturing, and all of a sudden the government says, hey, we're going to get in the truck body manufacturing business. I mean, that, that alarms me. That, that really raises a red flag. Are you in a similar situation? Yes. And what we're seeing is that uh, bigger is better. Uh, the mom and pop is an afterthought, in my opinion. Now, small town, rural South Carolina, Pampico, for example, uh, those markets, I think, are going to be okay, but just because of how far out they are. But some of these locations that Chase Oil owns now, I mean, we're beginning second and third revision thoughts on how we're going to compete when the electric world gets here. Part of what there we see happening is you're seeing bigger facilities with more options. Make sure when you build a new store, you've got a restaurant in it. Why? Because the, your customers are going to be sitting there waiting while their car is charging. So you need to have other businesses that can occupy their brains while we're waiting on this transaction to occur. So that's the kind of stuff that we've started preliminarily looking at. And you see them, y'all see them all across. I mean, the, the bigger guys are coming in now and they're, they're, there's more food offerings and different things in there. And that's where it's headed. And they're bigger footprinted areas. And they're also much more expensive sites. So, so you believe that, that in the future, somebody builds a convenience store in a major market, I'm talking about an interstate, mm -hmm. highly trafficked. You believe that we'll see half as many fuel pumps and where there once was fuel pumps will be charging stations. Not, I mean, that, that's the evolution in this business. Eventually. Eventually. But I don't see it anytime soon. And isn't that where, where you and I would agree? It, okay, I'm not opposed to innovation. Mm -hmm. I'm not opposed to transitioning to a better way to, um, to personally transport people from point A to point B. But, but the government has this unbelievable ambition, and we're not anywhere near uh, the point of being able to well, provide the power the necessary. Key, the key word you just said, a better way. That's not a better way right now uh, until they get this resolved that this is not a better way. And, 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 uh, you know, the, what's going on now is an experiment. I mean, Bucky's has got it out there. We're going to get it. But on we're not experiment with hair dye. Right. Or, or with a different kind of shoe sole. Exactly. I mean, energy and transportation is critical. This is an expensive experiment. You, you better believe it. And if you get and guess wrong, who's paying for it. Well, I mean, and, and, and Chase, you know this. Mm -hmm. If you get it wrong, and the government tends to, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a generational effect here. That's, I don't disagree. Once again, if I buy a pair of, um, of, of running shoes, and I don't like them, you know what I do? I go buy a new pair of running shoes. Right. If I, if I have a bad meal, I don't go back to the restaurant again. But we're talking about the energy infrastructure and personal transportation. And I just think for, 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 for government to believe they know better than the market, we're, we're all going to pay a significant price. And if we're wrong... The government's going to figure out a way to pay for that wrong. And guess who's going to pay for yeah. it? It'll be us. It'll be the taxpayer. Yep. Appreciate you, my man. Absolutely. Appreciate you Thank coming Thank you for by. everything, guys. Right, and I appreciate you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. <laughs> okay. I okay. got you to laugh with yeah, that. That's a good one. I, I, yeah. Because he's talking about seasoned professionals. I mean, I'm seasoned. I mean, I, you know, I'll accept that. I'll embrace I'm seasoned. But professional don't you ever, Josh, yeah. accuse me of being a professional. <laughs> yes. You want to ruin your reputation. Nah, don't you ever. <laughs> I am a seasoned amateur who thinks a lot of his own opinion. Let's go to the vault. That makes you good at this job, I think. <laughs> Here is uh, David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, that was a good segment there. Uh, that's real people. Uh, they're doing a real job, real business. They're washing cars or whatever. I mean, I guess they don't charge extra whatever for ED or non-ED. 
And guess what? They're not virtual and they're not government subsidized. Uh, you know, Barry brought up a good point earlier. Can I watch this Carville and Bill Maher? Did you have a chance to watch that? Yeah, but I can't play that on the air. I mean, there, there's too much, I, you know, creative language. I understand that, but man, and this is what bothers me. You got a guy, Carville, and here's the sad part about it. I'm old enough to remember where this guy started from. And let's go back. You were alive back in the day. Tell me about this economy, stupid. What was 1991, 1992, whatever this recession, do you really remember it? <sighs> Man, I, I mean, was. Is it, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I, I'm just saying I would have been. My interest in the economy obviously got, got I, mean, I became more interested in the economy as I got older. And in a family business, took on more responsibilities. But but I mean, my my interest in in the in the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, it was more about how can I get to the next day. You know, mo- more so than GDP or or policy or conservative or liberal. I just I don't remember paying much attention to that at all. Well, okay. Well, my whole point is that the economy wasn't that bad, and it wasn't like two thousand eight or during COVID and this and that. Uh, that was just something the media picked up on, and he knows that. James Carville knows that. Uh, and I said thing, and, I, and I'll go back with the Bill Moore. What is his claim to fame? He's going to try to convince you there's no such thing as God. This guy's been out of his way. He's done movies, this, that. And I hate to say it, back in those days, back in 91, 92, uh, he was lucky to get a, 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 a spot on Married with Children. So this guy has taken into an an industry, this political industry, because go back to the day. We don't have like CNN uh, in those days, and and we're looking at all this. What is it, News Nation? This uh, debate is going to be on News Nation tomorrow. Probably most people don't even get that. Uh, So that that industry has just gone so wild. But the Carville, he just – I don't like the guy. I really don't. Uh, and you know, you look what 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 our country was back in the day. We had American companies that had American factories that did things, and this globalization, all these mergers, buyouts, this that, with Wall Street. Go back to those days, and you'll find uh, uh, when the golden parachutes kicked in, you'll see where the change was, but. Bill Maher, Carville are no heroes of mine. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, I got a theory here. Um, you ready? And it's kind of two front. It's two pronged. I don't know that many people understand. I mean, if you ask the average American, Josh, what GDP is, what would they say? Oh no, Godzilla. Well, I mean, that's where I'm headed. I mean, they <laughs> gross domestic product. And even if they answer that, and you said, okay, what does that mean? I mean, if they, if they listened somewhere and they were, you know, they were aware enough or informed enough to understand that GDP means gross domestic product, and you followed up with, okay, what is that? That's when they would kind of confide. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I heard somebody say GDP meant gross domestic product. We had a couple of negative quarters. That kind of means, I mean, you see where I'm, to me, the economy is, how is it affecting me? And it goes back to my comments last week about the government has basically confiscated half of the money you earn. Whatever you earn, the government gets about half, directly, indirectly, 
gas tax, road tax, registration fee. Go go to the movie. There's a tax on the ticket. Go, go to the uh, popcorn and drink. Uh, you see where I'm headed. I mean, they, they get about 50% of all the money you make. And that's in, ridiculous. Well, I mean, it's absurd. But what they also have done, guys, is they've, they've devalued tremendously what they allow you to keep. And I use the number. I mean, whatever the number is, 100000 a year, 50000 a year, million a year, doesn't matter. But let's, let's go on the $100,000 a year income. So someone's making hundred grand a year. 50000 of that goes to the government in some way, shape, or form. But whatever. I mean, it's, it's uh, property taxes. It's sales taxes, income taxes. It's, it's payroll tax. But they're getting about half of every dollar you make. And then the money you get to keep. So you're keeping about fifty grand of the hundred grand. They devalued by at least twenty twenty five, maybe even a third. So that's the economy to me. When you ask the guy on the street or the lady at the plant, you know, hey, what does the economy? I mean, why why do you believe this person? They, they, they don't express this because they don't really pay enough attention. They're plenty smart. They're just not diligent. They're they're not prepared. They don't care much about uh, politics or ideology or you know, or debates or anything like that, but, but they just know that they feel poor. I mean, they feel like they're struggling more than they ever have. Well, you are. I mean, the average American worker today is struggling because wages have not kept up with inflation. So forget taxes. Not only, has the gov- not only does the government take too much of your money, we had a guest on this show one day, a scholarly sort, and I proposed a question. Rev knows where I'm headed. And I said, you know, is 50% statute, uh, if, the, if the statute interest rate in America was 50%, is that too high? And he said, and I quote, that's a good question. No, it's not tax, a good question. Tax rate. Tax rate. I'm yeah. sorry, tax rate. Is that, is, he said, that's a good question. No, that's a dumb question. But I mean, the answer is no. I mean, it shouldn't be 50% taxes. I mean, the government shouldn't be entitled to half the money you earn to operate and function local, state, and federal. That's absurd. For, you, for us to accept that that is legitimate, that's not legitimate. I don't know what the number is. I mean, is it 15%, 20%, 22%? Damn sure isn't 50%. I mean, you go to work at 5. You get off at, uh, excuse me, you go to work at 7 or 8. You get off at 5. You work 40 hours a week. You work 45 hours a week. I mean, the government doesn't go there with you. You you do your work. You uh, sweat of the brow, uh, you, uh, software pro, whatever it is you do. And you get paid. And we have accepted. I mean, and half the country's probably okay with this. We've accepted that the government, well, I mean, you know how it is. We got roads and bridges and schools and first responder. We got all these things to pay. Okay, we do. I'll accept that. We got a military and military defense contractors. And, you know, and all of a sudden the Americans have convinced themselves that, I mean, that's probably fair. You know, 50% is probably fair. That's nowhere near fair. Combined with the fact that they've devalued the money they've allowed you to keep so significantly. I'm not responsible for inflation. Rev's not responsible for inflation. Josh isn't responsible for inflation. And so so that's the economy. When we talk about, <coughs> excuse me, is the economy stupid? Okay, what did Carville meant? Or what did he mean? Well, that's what he meant. How do you feel about the economy? I mean, how, how did, what, what is your perception of where we are in matters, I mean, I'm not talking about a big table and a and a, you know a seminar or a uh, you know an economist luncheon where they educate the chamber members about where the economy is. No, the the economy is how much do you make, how much do you keep, and how much does crap cost? I mean that that's the economy. 
to most of us. And, and, and you know, I get the highfalutors, and they really do it to deceive. I mean, the, 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 the economic matter that uh, the economic matter that means the most is how much does Dave Baker make, how much does the government allow him to keep, and how much does the crap that he needs to exist and sustain cost and have a little bit left over to go do his fun things, go to the beach, go to a Gamecock football game, do whatever, and people are, are I mean, they're getting killed. I mean, they're getting destroyed. I almost put on Twitter uh, last week one day, this $80 worth of groceries is really putting a lot of pressure on my single index finger. <laughs> I mean, you go to a grocery store and you walk out of there with a, a couple of bags on the end of your index finger and you just spent $78.47. You're like, there's no way. I mean, there's no way. That's the anguish. That's the animus. That's the frustration that Americans, it's not about GDP. It's not about conservative or liberal. It's about what, what the government is doing to our income in deference to keeping their trains running on time. They'll take your money until they take it all to make sure their trains run on time. Their obligations are met. <coughs> Do we have a call? Uh, we don't. Okay. Um, somebody jump in here. Let me take a swallow of, of um, Celsius to clear the throat. <laughs> I'm, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm much better today than I've been for a week. But but if I get long winded, yeah. And after about four hours on the radio, I think it will take its toll. So I certainly understand that, and I don't really have much to add to your commentary. I mean, you're nodding your head. It, well, except that we, you know, we we commiserate together all the time about the the grocery store trips. Where and it is no lie. You know, something that used to cost you forty bucks, you know, for a couple bags of groceries is now eighty dollars. Well, I mean, there's like, something. Did on- I really just spend that? What did I? What did I get? There's something on Twitter this morning. Somebody put on there and said um, they went to a fast food restaurant and they paid for their order and they wanted to be generous and p- kind of pay ahead. You know, I want to get, I want to get the car behind me. And the, he said, um, he said, before he thought about it, we're all self-preservationists, no matter how yeah, generous you may consider yourself. So he pays for his, or she says that'll be whatever. And he says, how much is the one behind me? And, uh, it already made his mind up. He's going to pay ahead. He's going to do the generous and, and godly thing. And the person and the lady at the window said, uh, $47. He said, uh, give me some more napkins. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get what it. I mean, that, 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 we're all to that point. Um, we're all to the point of, you know, even those who aren't living paycheck to paycheck are sitting there going, wow, that can't be 80 bucks. I mean, that, that car, that I saw a car the other day, like four years old with 70,000 miles, $36,000. I'm going like that. Right. That's got to be a misprint. There's no way that four-year-old car with with X number of miles is thirty some odd thousand dollars. A new one doesn't cost that much, but it does. Um, the new one is seventy some odd thousand dollars, and I don't know when that rooster comes home to roost. I don't have any idea what that number is, but but I will say this: the people in charge of government believe, and you've allowed them to believe, that they're entitled to about fifty percent of your money. They don't go to work with you. I mean, they could care less if your house gets foreclosed. They could care less if your kid gets, you know, what they want for Christmas. They don't care. Funding government, funding government, funding government. And, and that goes back to my theory, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think we're headed to a, 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 a very, ah, there, there's going to be a certain degree of conflict in our society between public and private sector workers before long. But I really believe that. And I think the pandemic, I don't know how many people came to me 
during the pandemic talking about the struggles they were having at work, the struggles they're having running their business when government workers weren't going to work and getting paid. I mean, I read a couple of weeks back that about 30% of all federal government workers still aren't going to the office. I mean, nobody missed a paycheck. I mean, they, you know, put it on the tab. And, and you got the private sector out here doing all it can to survive. And, and I'm not saying bad people in the public sector, good people in the private sector. But sooner or later, you're going to take so much of a person's income that they get a bit offended. And, and I believe we're headed there. Now, now go to Carville real quick. Got about a minute, minute and a half here. James Carville's problem with Trump is the, the crowd that loves Trump used to love Carville. The good old boys. Bubba from Arkansas. I mean, that's the Trump consolidation. I never thought of it that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, Springsteen, same thing. I mean, you know, the people that Bruce wrote about. You know, Bruce got wealthy singing about factory workers. How many, how many factories does Trump lose in America? I mean, if you took right. the rank and file, you better damn be glad it ain't about factory workers and farmers and construction <laughs> hands. I mean, you better be glad this election isn't about that. Those people feel abused. They should. They've been taken advantage of. The working class in America has been taken advantage of in a major, major way, not only economically, but policy-wise as well. Globalism has not been good for the American worker. Intervention has not been good for the American worker. And, and Trump is a kind, kind of a, um, I don't know, Rev, a, a manifestation. I don't know if that's the right word. He is where you end up when so many people have so many squabbles with the government, but they don't know who to blame. But they really don't know. Is that Carville's fault? Is that Bill Clinton's fault? Is that Barack Obama's fault? Is that Hillary Clinton's fault? They don't know. I mean, they, they, don't, they don't know how to put that puzzle. Not that they aren't smart enough. They got other things to do, man. I mean, they're living their lives. They're trying to survive in a, in a workplace, in a family life, in church, in ball. I mean, they're, they're doing their thing. They don't have four hours every morning listening to conservative talk radio lecture to them about what's happening right before your very eyes. But we are getting ever closer to this moment of conflict. And, and I think Trump is, a lot of you believe that Trump is kind of the, um, he's the culmination. I think he's the beginning. I mean, I think we live, I think I live the rest of my life in the most politically chaotic time America has seen probably since the Civil War. I mean, I really believe that. And I embrace it because I think it's the only way to get the people back in charge of their government. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.